Hello and welcome to episode 78 of Adult Music, a podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I'm your co-host, Mike. It's been kind of a sad week in the music world, Mike. It sure has, especially if you're a, a jazz fan, really. Um, yeah. There were two really surprising uh, deaths this week, and then uh, there, we had a third one as well. Right. Um, but let's have you, you can start talking about that. So anyway, we'll play our our musical necrology theme. There it is, the Dies Irae. Yes. Uh, we haven't had to play it in a while, but... Yeah, um, but now, you know... <laughs> well, I guess we'll go through the, the list in, um, unfortunately, in uh, age order, youngest You're going to go oldest. in age order? Okay. Um, and so our first um, death this week was Jamie Branch, a uh, jazz composer and trumpeter uh, who passed away on August 22nd at the age of 39. 39. That was really shocking for me. And I thought this would be the the bad news of the week. I actually have her three um, fly or die recordings and um, they're, they're a bit of a challenge. I like them, but I was kind of interested in hearing where she was going to go. And now she's, uh, she's gone at 39 and uh, I'm rather sad about that. I'm going to have to give those yeah. a listen again. So Jamie Branch. Yeah. Didn't know her music too well. I had listened a little bit. Yeah, she's pretty adventurous. Adventurous think, electronics. Not really my thing, yeah. but you know, yeah. the more the merrier. Variety is uh, good. I'm happy to. I'm happy to hear people stretching out. And, yeah. Um, mm. So and, that was a yeah. We don't we don't know yeah. the the cause, and that just in a way, that kind of makes it a little harder to bear because you don't really you, right. you don't have a you have the sense that this person was taken away. As opposed to, you know, well, that happened and right. you know, it's it settled. So yeah. we don't know why, but uh, Jamie Branch died 39 years old. Very sad. Yeah. But then, oh, this. The big shock. I thought that yeah. would be it. But then a big shock, an even bigger shock came, well, for us anyway. Probably all jazz fans have heard this news already, but uh, Joey Francisco, the great mm-hmm. organist, the big organist of his generation. Uh, and yeah. I mean, and more. I mean, he's a really good trumpet player too, and uh, sax. He was uh, getting pretty good on sax, and he was he's even sang on his last album. Right. And uh, he passed away at the age of fifty-one on August twenty-fifth. Right, just a few days ago. Yeah. And this one hit me pretty hard. I was kind of surprised too, because I'm a I'm not a huge you know I like I listen to plenty of jazz, but I don't really like attached to it the way, you know, like um, that you do or that, you know, jazz musicians mm. do and things like that. And yet, yeah, this felt, this felt really bad to me. I felt like a real, cause I love, you know, like you, I love the, uh, the Hammond organ right? and he really was the best as of his generation. And we really liked listening to him a lot. He also has one of the best jazz Christmas albums um, ever, and yeah, I, I would recommend that Home for yeah. the Holidays. It's called. It was released in 2014, and you know, that's uh, part of my my Christmas listening every year. <laughs> now, this one really struck me as um, mm. I told you and probably said this story maybe back at the beginning of the podcast. But uh, when I was a youngster, mm. uh, still in high school, at a very small school, but with a great music program, you know, in the public schools, the arts are really important. I think. And uh, we had opportunities to play at music festivals and competitions uh, since I was uh, 12 or 13 years old. My junior year in 1987, we submitted an audition to the first 
Downbeat Magazine Music Fest competition mm. uh, that was for uh, high school and university bands. And our band from our small school got picked, and we were, you know, kind of in awe. So we went out there to Chicago and um, played our best. And we didn't win a band award, but I got a solo award, a stage band all-star. Cool. I got to go up on the stage with, you know, all these great players from around the country, get my little award. And that came out, the winners came out in an issue of Downbeat Magazine. You know, so I looked at it at the time, being 17, and I said, well, I'll just save this, and went on to, you know, continue my music studies and things. And a couple of years later, I started hearing names, and I looked uh, back in that magazine, and I noticed <laughs> on the list with me uh, were the names Christian McBride, Roy mm. Hargrove, and Joey DeFrancesco. Yeah, three giants. Wow. You know, at that time, I guess, they were, uh, I think Christian McBride and Joey DeFrancesco went to the same school in Philadelphia. Yeah. And they were already, you know, huge, monstrous players when they were teenagers. Right. And I think not shortly after that, or around the same time, Joey DeFrancesco actually got a recording contract and he was playing with, you know, big jazz names. So... Those names just jumped out when I saw mm. that. And then, you know, a few years ago, I was shocked because uh, Roy Hargrove passed away in 2018 right. at age 49. And uh, now Joey DeFrancesco is gone. So, you know, and I'm a year older than him. So, yeah, both um, too young. Yeah, yeah it just really. makes you think. Incidentally, there's a good, um, there's an episode of uh, Jazz Night in America hosted by Christian McBride where he talks to Joey DeFrancesco. Yeah. Um, uh, from 2019, I think it was, but it was yeah. it was pretty recent. It was a good conversation. It's very long. They're best of friends. Yeah, people might want to hear that. And also, we talked about um, Joey DeFrancesco's um, most recent album, More Music, mm -hmm. on uh, episode 39 of the uh, Adult Music Podcast, entitled yeah. uh, Organic High. And we've pinned that to the top of our Facebook page, if anybody wants to hear it. It'll be there at the top for the rest of the week. Next week, we'll... Take yeah. it down unless a lot of people start listening. Then we'll leave it there for a while longer. I read the, um, I think Christian McBride has written something up in his memory. <laughs> was, right. You know, it's so sad, but he seemed unstoppable. And he, there's a story in there. I think he said when he came back from playing with Miles Davis, he said, you know, I'm going to learn to play the trumpet. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Christian McBride is like, why? He's like, I just want to. And, yeah. you know, and then he's just, you know, seemed to be able to conquer any uh, task that he set his mind to. So. It's it's really great, and he was a good trumpet player. But he was I mean, good. Yeah. we want to hear him play the organ, though. <laughs> yeah. The audience likes hearing that. Yeah. I certainly do. And he really stretched out on a lot of his solo albums. But if you want to hear him really on the organ, like at his uh, best, his recent best, anyway, let's say the two most recent albums he was on as a sideman that would be uh, Christian McBride's album for Jimmy West and Oliver. Yeah, that's uh, from twenty twenty. It's a smoking one, he, and he's great on that. And then there was one in 2021 uh, by Tom Cohen, the drummer, called My Take, and uh, Joey plays on four of the five tracks on that, and he he's smoking on that one too. Mm. Um, so those will be a good sample of where he was at you know, just mm. recently. So I recommend those. I've been listening to those this week, really. All right, we've got one more um, death in the jazz world, and... This An elder statesman this time. Elder statesman, uh, yeah. passing away at the age of 93, Creed Taylor, visionary record producer and the founder of Impulse and yeah. CTI labels. I think he started out for Bethlehem Records, and he stayed for a couple of years, and he got some big 
jazz names recorded, Carmen McRae, uh, Mingus, Herbie Mann, Charlie Shavers, and also I think the J.J. Johnson Kai Winding Quintet. Then he left Bethlehem to join Paramount, ABC Paramount, and then a few years later he made the Impulse label because he wanted to make a kind of uh, current jazz-focused label. And let's see, there he signed John Coltrane to Impulse. All those great uh, recordings you know uh, on Impulse uh, came through uh, his work there. Uh, And then he left not too long after that uh, to accept a job at Verve, the thing that people remember him most for is that uh, he was kind of strong in promotion of the bossa nova craze and uh, so the whole beam stand gets whole girl from Ipanema uh, he wanted to have that you know really pushed in a serious way and uh, he went down to Brazil and met Hobim and uh, then of course Desifinado became a big hit you know, he was uh, largely involved in those projects and then he also produced on Verve recordings for Wes Montgomery Jimmy Smith, uh, Bill Evans, Cal Jader, too. So a big uh, name in the recording end of the jazz world uh, passes on at a ripe old age of 93. So thank you for all those great records. Until all three um, yeah. who, who have left us this week. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad the week's over and we can kind of recalibrate uh, now. Then... Let's hope we don't have to play the theme for a while. For a while. Right. Yeah. And only, please, for the, the elder statesmen who have lived long Long That's lives. right. All right, let's move into the music happier section, happier things. Uh, before we get started, I remind everyone uh, in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the recordings we're going to talk about. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. You get all the music in one spot on Deezer. You can also follow us there. Just look username Adult Music Podcast. You can listen to the podcast there as well. And if you don't see the full description or the links are not clickable on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, come over to our host site, podbean.com, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and all the links for this and past episodes are easy to reach. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. And if you take a moment to give us a ranking or a review, that helps us get listed in the browsing categories, and that helps us make our audience grow and makes us happy. You can also come follow us on our Facebook page, get extra info and more new releases throughout the week. You can leave a message or a comment there. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd be happy to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah. All right. So... Speaking of happiness, I'm kind of uh, be happy. It'd be really happy if we had like millions of listeners and had classical and jazz music, you know, being really popular like yeah. like they once were. Um, but I was I, I actually posted on my personal Facebook site this week about how happy I am just uh, hanging around in the morning listening to all these records. It's it's been a really enjoyable summer that way. Mm. Um, yeah, I could I could uh, I could live like that. I think. <laughs> Okay, that was earlier in the week before all the the news of these deaths yeah. started coming in. So then I got a little, it pulled me away. I wanted to hear their records now all of a sudden, just so I could kind of remember them. Okay, anyway, here we go. For this week, I had some uh, artists that I actually like that were really my choices. I was kind of uh, some artists I've known about uh, for quite a while, and uh, the first one is um, an ensemble and a choral ensemble called uh, Dulce Memoir. Um, they're French, and they are um, directed by Denis Raison-Dadre. 
And um, I have the, the album. Let me just get this out of the way here. The album is uh, Josquin Desprez, um, and the album's called Tant Vous Aime, How Much I Love You. Um, now, Josquin, of course, is a Renaissance-era um, composer. We did a whole um, thing about him last year hmm. in his... Um, his uh it was an anniversary year it was like i can't remember which anniversary it was but some some crazy huge number like 450 years or something no it was like 1521 to yeah, 500 years since his death or something okay 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 so anyway this album is on the richard car label which is a belgian early music record label founded way back in 1980 i've only heard about them recently and i want to talk about the uh, douce memoir a bit the um the ensemble. They were uh, founded in 1989. I first heard about them in 2000, the year 2000. So that's already 22 years I've known about them. Mm. They did an album of uh, Neapolitan songs, uh, very, very old Neapolitan songs from the 16th century. So O Sole Mio wasn't on it. That's from the 19th <laughs> century. <laughs> These are really old, okay? And I didn't know any of the songs on it. It was just fantastic. Like all Neapolitan songs throughout these centuries, they're very melodic and really enjoyable, and some interesting chord changes in them, too. The album, if you want to check it out, was called Viva Napoli, and it was on the Naive label, another French label. So I really loved that record. And then, back then, somehow, this is before the internet, really, I was, and I kind of lost track of them a bit, because it was a French label. I was going through like these British... Um, companies that it was a small french labels that they were recording on and they weren't as well distributed as they are today um so i couldn't really get a hold of any of their other albums and then in 2019 just um was it three years ago now they uh released an ambitious album called leonardo da vinci la musique secrète which this was on the alpha label and it really knocked me out i bought this on a cd it was a i think it was a two cd set but it came in this big sort of rectangular box with a whole book in it and it was a program of music that was aligned with these renaissance era paintings by leonardo so they'd pick like a leonardo painting and then kind of have certain works that sort of went with them i mean they're usually religious paintings so you have a lot of like you know songs with religious texts to match with them and it was really fantastic the, the sound they have a really unique sound i really like their um their sound so i'm always happy to hear them so both albums were intriguing. Now they did this one of uh, Josquin, and I figured we had to hear this, and I had to talk about at least them once on this podcast. So this is on the Reacher Car label. This is not a fancy release in any way. It's a, just a CD. It's got a good booklet in it. The booklet notes mostly talk about Josquin's life and how our understanding of that in recent years has changed. Like We used to think he spent most of his life in Italy, but he didn't. Uh, he was traveling around quite a bit. He was a Flemish composer. Also, Desprez used to be thought of as um, kind of a like a, a place marker name, but it actually might be his family name now because he's usually just okay. listed as Josquin, not as uh, mm. Desprez, right? You'll find him under J in your in your record store, <laughs> he's, which is his first name, his given name. Anyway, he's referred to as Josquin. So let's talk about this record of... Uh, um, Josquin by Douce Memoir Denis, Denis Raisin d'Adre. Now, a lot of these um, tracks are going to be sort of two poems combined together, which was kind of the way things were done, especially in the medieval area. But in the Renaissance, it kind of got 
hung over quite a bit. I should also mention uh, Josquin is mostly is most famous for his masses. These are all or almost all secular works. So there's songs and just sort of things like that for entertainments or whatever. First track, there are 25 tracks on this album. This is good, <laughs> and they're all short, which is also pretty nice. So it's about an hour long program, mm. and they're all all of these titles are in old French, so with Y's for where we would put an I today. So the first one, si je si je perdois mon ami ami A M Y, my friend, right? And par un matin me leve. All right, this one starts with a lovely soft lute opening. We're going to hear a lot of this thing. They have great instrumentation. Please, these works um, don't come with um, tabulate. They come with tablature, I guess, but no indications of which instrument to use. So this is all the ensemble's choice. And I really like the, the gentle instruments they've mostly yeah. chosen for this album. Yeah, mostly, Except for one yeah. or two tracks one or two things, that, yeah. that we'll get to yeah. later. They let the geese right. out of the barn. <laughs> yeah, the geese get let out of the barn uh, occasionally. But on this one, no, we're in someone's bedchamber here. Um, a lovely soft lute opening. Always kind of sounds like a little afterglow for me. Um, the text is a meditation on the death of a friend. Well, maybe no afterglow here. <laughs> um, and it's movingly sung by the, the soprano, sorry, Clara Kutuli, Kutui, I guess. The music speeds up. We have a male vocalist, which is tenor Hugh Primad, starting the second verse with imitative harmony from the soprano. This is really beautiful. Um, nice writing here and beautifully performed, too. The rest of the ensemble comes in for a lot of the overlapping imitative harmony for the rest of the verses. So in this way, the piece builds an excitement. Apparently, um, in the text, the friend has been murdered. <laughs> and in the mm -hmm. third verse, the vocalist wishes to find the one... Quote, who has banished all my joy to be at the bottom of a deep well. <laughs> wow, that's quite a statement yeah. to make in the first track there. Passions ran deep in the Renaissance. Maybe I should do that. Wish my enemies to be found at the bottom of a deep well. We don't really, <laughs> <laughs> really hear that anymore. All right, track two. Vivrai je toujours en telle peine. This one is sung in a slower more syrupy way. When I say syrupy, I don't mean sweet. I mean more like it's kind of, it's got, there's a molasses quality to the lines, like melting. They're kind of gooey, melting into each other sort of thing. Uh, featuring different polyphonic verses, all enunciating their texts clearly, weaving with each other so that the words can't really be understood. This was, um, Robert Greenberg mentions in one of his uh, um, great courses lectures that this was the big paradox of the uh, renaissance they wanted clarity so each line was written so that each word could be understood with absolute clarity but then when you put all these polyphonic verses together you can't understand <laughs> them again <laughs> so the, although each line is absolutely clear they, they get blurred when they mix together so it's a big paradox really so when you listen to this make sure you give equal importance to each voice all right that's the uh that we, we usually don't listen to the lower voices and you know, in Renaissance music it's mm. imperative because the polyphonic in polyphonic music all voices are equally important we, we, we're used to pop music we listen to the top voice usually okay but give it a try okay so there are recorders accompanying on this track and they sweeten the sound I like the recorder sound on this album too track three Qui Bel Amour this starts with a lute played by Pascal Bouquet 
he accompanies the baritone Matthew Lelevreux, I think. He's he's pretty a bunch of high baritone, but I'm pretty sure that's this is him because he gets into the tenor range a little bit, the lower tenor range. There's also a harp, another really the Renaissance harp is a beautiful instrument too. It's a little smaller than the mm. uh, the Romantic harp, played by Berenger Sardin. We hear Clara Coutouilly comes back in on soprano to sing imitative polyphony. The song is about the fickleness of lovers. <laughs> Some things never change, do they? Qui bel amour a souvent si le ramou. He who has beautiful loves often changes them. <laughs> <laughs> These are really... Um, oh, yeah. Okay, anyway. Uh, what was going on back then? I wonder. Okay. <laughs> Lovely singing by the two soloists. Yeah, some, I guess some things never change. We we tend to think of the past as being kind of more solid and holy than we are today. Uh, apparently uh, not. Maybe it's dependent not. on your station. All right, track four. Alors que je vous px. I don't know what that is. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is an instrumental and it features a shom. This is the uh, the geese in the barn here. Yeah, played by Elsa Frank and Bombards. Played by Johann Maître Denis Raison d'être, the um, or d'être, the um, uh, director, and Jeremy Papasergio. And all nasal sounding, very loud. And they kind of sounded to me like someone wiggling his hand on his nose at you <laughs> and saying, yeah, yeah, like a kid. Yeah. This is a bracing and invigorating track. <laughs> It'll yeah, kind of fun. If, if you're being lulled into, a, into some peace. After the first three tracks, this will take you right out of it. So, anyway, track five, Ricercar Ottava. Vincenzo Capirola is the composer here, not Joscan. And it's an instrumental. It's a gentle track played on the lute by Pascal Bouquet and on the harp, Berger Sardin. Uh, all lute and harp, all, all tracks with the lute and the harp include each other. So, there's no like lute solo or harp solo. They play together. Mm. Beautiful work. Track six, I remember this one from my uh, music uh, education days, Petite Camusette. Um, there are different. This is another one that Robert Greenberg actually singles out for uh, how different performances of a Renaissance work can sound completely different. And uh, this one sounds different than the ones that I heard <laughs> back then. This particular one features the uh, above lute and harp with a recorder. It sets the melody for the two polyphonic works we'll hear in the next two tracks. And here we hear the counter-teller Paulin Bundgen. Track 7, Celle Mamera and Petit Camusette, uh, composed by Johannes Akagame, who was, I think, Josquin's predecessor. He was the great composer of the generation before Josquin. This is one is a cappella harmony, the first time we're hearing this on this mm. album, with all voices combining on Celle Mamera, which is a song about a person who's in love with someone who's not returning his interest. <laughs> Immortal, I'm telling you, these themes. And uh, Petite Camusette, who will be, uh, she's a, the singer sings that uh, she will be the death of him. And I guess they do, the themes do go together. Uh, the track moves on weaving lines. The two texts, not easy to decipher from the song, but beautifully sung. I should mention at this point that this album is beautifully recorded. And that mm. really has always been the case with Dulce Memoir. All the recordings sound great, the ones I've heard anyway, which are three of them actually. Okay, in track eight, we hear Josquin's Petite Camusette, a pretty famous work. It's polyphonic, featuring all voices and recorders, and it's begun in the bass. Uh, Guillaume Olry is the uh, bass uh, voice. It's very brief. Track nine, 
an instrumental. Mein Hex in Hohen Freuden ist by Anonymous and found in Das Lochamer Liederbuch. Uh, it's an instrumental track featuring a recorder and lute. Really beautiful again. Mm. There's some nice off-center notes in this performance. Uh, I don't know who the soloist is as four are listed and <laughs> the one on this track <laughs> isn't indicated. So I don't know who it is that's playing the, uh, the uh, recorder on this. All right, track 10 is the um, title track of the album, Tat Vuzem. This comes with the same orchestration as the previous, so they go kind of into each other. But there's a singer now. Uh, the tenor Hugh Primard just started out, and then the soprano Clara Coutouille, whose voice is really beautiful. I really mm. enjoyed. Renaissance voices aren't quite the big, you know, pinning you to the back wall operatic voices that we had in the uh, 18th and especially 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, this is one of those songs where the singer sings his love to a Bergeronette, who is a lovely shepherd girl. We heard a whole album of these ones <laughs> in the day. The notes indicate that the piece is incomplete. It's a slow, romantic work. I'm sure it worked uh, in seducing the shepherd girl. We don't know by the text if he if if he seduced her, but if he played music like this, surely he did. <laughs> Track 11, Belle pour l'amour de vous. A recorder ensemble accompanies the full vocal ensemble here, and the text could be romantic or sinister. <laughs> the singer has followed or stalked his love to this town out of love for him or her. It could be a woman stalking the man. We don't really know from the text, but um, I think we can guess that it's the man following the woman out of his love or stalking him, depending on how you want to think about it. Anyway, track 12, Au revoir. Uh Conrad Paulman is the uh, composer, and this comes from Das Lochamer Liederbuch. It's an instrumental, light instrumental piece with a little charming lift in its step uh, it's played by an alto recorder, and so that means there are two possible soloists, and I'm going to guess it's the director, Denis Rezendadre himself. He's accompanied by a harp and lute. Track 13, Que vous, madame, and coupled with Impace. A recorder ensemble introduces this piece, which is a little more low-key and darker than the previous. There's contrast here. I'm guessing the text is... Impace mostly. The singer simply indicates that he will rest, and the accompaniment is Kevu Madame in the recorders. So I'm guessing we're not really getting the words for um, Kevu Madame. You can hear some proto Bach in his cantatas in the way the voices move more statically than the accompaniment. I kind of hmm. picked that out of this. Track 14, Agnus Day. Okay, this is a religious track, but it's instrumental. This is Heinrich Isaac from his Misa La Spagna, but it's an instrumental. Um, it's a lute and harp duet, light and gentle. All of these duets are so beautifully taken and always welcome to the ears. It's very brief at a minute and 36 seconds. And then we get a, some more contrast with um, my favorite tune of the entire Renaissance, if I had to <laughs> do my top tunes, El Grillo. And I was going crazy about this on the... Uh, the version we heard last year on the uh, Joscan album mm -hmm. on the Decca label. And I was going crazy about this one too because I love this tune. Uh, this is sung by the entire ensemble. They give it a bit of a comic approach with their pronunciation and harmony interpretation. Some of them go a little bit off of the harmony and mm -hmm. get this real kind of broad, almost like throaty sound. Always welcome to the ears. Brief at a minute. Oh, I'm sorry. Um... Yeah, it's charming as always. I love the whole dale, dale, breve, breve, grillo, grillo, canta, canta. 
El Grillo <laughs> and Buen Cantor. It's so good and so catchy. Make sure you hear it. I love this tune. El Grillo means the cricket. Talks about how the cricket is such a good singer. And they're encouraging him to sing more. <laughs> as Italians would. If you're a good singer. Anyway. Track 16. In te, domine, speravi. This is sung by a soprano, accompanied by lute and harp. It's a lament to God, bemoaning the singers having requested relief from torment and not finding it. What the actual issue is isn't stated in the lyric. At the end of sections, the vocal ensemble repeats the last line, but this is soprano Clara Coutouille's piece to sing. She's got an appealing light voice. The piece falls gently on the ear. Track 17, we get a few, um, tr two tracks with these, uh, this character named uh, Scaramella. I guess a popular um, character from the Renaissance era. This is called uh, Scaramella Falagalla, and this is uh, composed by Loisette Compere. This has shawms and bombards. It's very mm. loud. Uh, Scaramella is a comic character. The vocalists come in after an introduction, and they have to sing loudly in order to be heard over these over yeah. the racket that these instruments make. Uh, there's something martial about this piece, and at 2 minutes and 30 seconds, the rhythm suddenly changes to triplets, which is always cool. Scatamella is a character who pretends to be upper class, but his shoes don't match and give him away as some poor <laughs> bumpkin. So, object of mockery at the time, the, the lower class guy trying to pass for upper class. Track 18, Scaramella va a la guerra. He's going to war now. Uh, this is a cappella at the beginning, but the showman bombards come back in for a turkey shoot. <laughs> it sounds like that anyway. I'm not complaining. They sound great. They're fun, but it's yeah. just It's a sound you, fun. It's you don't fun. hear every day, yeah. It's a sound you don't hear often. It's But it, it'll catch you by surprise if you don't hear it. They are entertaining. Don't, don't take my words to mean anything negative there. Okay, it's similar to the previous Scaramella piece. Track 19, Bass, Dance, Coeur, Angoisseau. This is a brief instrumental interlude for gentle lute and harp. And uh, the programming of this album is well done, I should mention. There's a lot of um, variety of sound and also contrast between pieces. Like the, the works with the shawms come at beautifully calculated times to kind of uh, lull you out of your complacency. And then we'll get back to something quiet. It's, it's really uh, nicely done. Easy to listen to all the way through. Track 20, Ma Boucherie, by Johannes Okegame. Again, uh, Josquin's predecessor. Um, means my, my mouth laughs. The soprano sings this with lute and harp accompaniment. Each instrument appealingly in a different speaker. I rather enjoyed that. You can kind of pick them out with the singer in the center. Um, her mouth laughs, but her mind or her heart weeps because she's been betrayed by her lover. Kutui sings these songs with a light sadness appropriate to the era, like the feeling she's singing about is more universal than personal. Lovely voice for a lovely tune. Track 21, we hear, um, I guess, Josquin's uh, setting for this uh, piece, Ma Boucherie, again. This track continues from the previous, but brings the bass voice, uh, Guillaume Olry. The bass only sings, my voice laughs and my heart weeps, uh, over and over again, as the soprano continues to lament her feelings. The bass sounds like it's picked up the soprano sadness as enfolding her in an accompanying sadness in his line. It's a really lovely track. Track 22, Bergerette Savoisienne, a duet featuring countertenor Paulin Bundgen and baritone Matthew Lelevreur. This is a song where a shepherd professes his love for a Savoyard shepherdess. I'm guessing the third verse is the shepherdess's reply, and she merely says her desires won't change. 
The voices don't indicate a change of speaking voice, though. Um, so it's hard to know what's going on. It's a gentle, enjoyable tune. I'm guessing she rebuffs him, actually, in this <laughs> song. Okay, next track, uh, Bergeretta Savoyena. This is um, from a collection called Canti C, and it's an instrumental piece. Recorder ensemble, again, nice variety. Now we're hearing these wind instruments, the recorders, on the same piece as the above. It's played at the same speed as the previous track, and I like the masked recorder sound here. Really catches the ear's attention. And, yeah, it rings for some time. I, I like the uh, sound. Track 24, we're almost there. Hang on. L'ombre d'un buissonnet, an a cappella piece. The text is a love tryst with Bellon. She's finding his love in the garden and asking for her love. She flirtatiously rejects him, and then he tries to lure her with bread. And that's I how the text that ends. One. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> wow. I think you have to spend more these days. Yeah. And that's how the text ends. I guess he was successful wow. from this. Then track 25, they really leave us with this sad, kind of tragic track called mm. Une jeune fillette sur, um, sur comment peut avoir joie. So he's... um. The 15-year-old single mother story. Yeah. It's a pretty shocking text here. Yeah, it's, it's really <laughs> sad, too. Anyway, the tenor, Hugh Primard, starts this a cappella. Nice voice, like the sopranos, to hear ringing by itself in silent space. He sings about a 15-year-old girl who gets it on with her boyfriend and gets pregnant and then is reprimanded by her mother. The second verse, you got to remember, this is the, the 1600s, and oh, the, the 1500s, actually, that we're talking about here. The second verse has the soprano, Clara Coutouille, responding a cappella that she knows she'll get money from the man because he's a good man, so she trusts him. You know, she's pregnant, he's going he's gonna to help her. The third verse has both soprano and tenor duetting with lute and harp accompaniment. Again, placed in separate speakers, it sounds great. Here the girl says she did it willingly and is happy with what she's done. And in the fourth verse, we learn that the person who wrote this song is the man who deflowered her and got her pregnant. Unless it's another guy entirely and the whole scene is going to repeat. Who knows? <laughs> um, we don't find out what happens afterwards, but if this guy's bragging about it, I don't know. You know? <laughs> yeah. He might run away. Ugh. Anyway, we are left with that. So anyway, that's the whole program. And it's another beautifully performed and recorded album by Douce Memoirs the third of their many albums to enter my collection. I always enjoy their performances, their tone, their programming. It's really the programming that makes this album go beyond most Renaissance music albums. Raisin Dadre has organized enough variety of instrumentation and style that the ear is constantly engaged and the listener wonders what the next piece will be like. Um, that's certainly what I was doing. The album is mostly gentle, but with some invigorating works. That's the word I chose for the shawms, invigorating and bombards. Boy, when this was called a bombard, you already have a good idea what it's going to sound like, don't you? Yep. I think that's where they came with the word, a bombardment or something. <laughs> Just launching these yeah. sounds at you. The ensemble has a personal way of performing that makes the listener feel close to them. This is one of the... Uh, the qualities about this ensemble that I like so much. I feel mm. like I'm being invited into their group when I listen to these albums. There's something very personable and personal about the way they perform these tracks. It kind of feels like uh, their friends introducing you to new music rather than a performing group on a stage. And yet they're as professional sounding as an ensemble could possibly be. Yeah, that personal element draws me to them. See if you can hear that. And uh, I, yeah, I, love, I like this a lot. Just Khan's music's always really 
interesting, especially with all the little harmonic surprises that come along the way. And the recording here is really clear, rich acoustics. It sounds great. And as you mentioned, I wrote overall the programming is just yeah. really well done. That's always the case with them. Yeah, it really brings mm -hmm. out the contrast in the material, the different types of melodies and feels, but also the instrumentation and varying the vocal and instrumental pieces. Uh, mostly, other than the bombard, <laughs> it's uh, beautiful yeah. and calming. I think it makes for really perfect uh, early morning or evening listening, either or. Uh, it, yeah. It'll focus you in and... Uh, give you lots of nice uh, things to listen to. So highly recommend it. And the Bombards gave my speaker a workout. You know, the waterfowl in the area will be coming the water, by your house. Yeah, they all <laughs> ran away. <laughs> all right, next, one of my favorite set of piano works, Isaac Albanese, Iberia. This is a set of 12 piano pieces that kind of are sort of evocations of um, different places in Spain. That's really the first set of works of its kind. I'll get to that a little in a little bit. Here the pianist is Nelson Gurner, who is an Argentinian pianist, and uh, he won the Franz Liszt competition in 1986. And I've got a lot of his recordings. He's done a lot of Debussy and Brahms. Um, this is on the Alpha Classics label. Gurner's album covers always have some uninteresting picture of him on them. He's usually just looking at you or you see the side of his head. Here you see his back and he's sitting on a, it's a black and white photo of him sitting on a set of stairs from the back. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I'm kind of, it's, it's hard to remember which album is which right. just from the album cover. Because you, you listen to rock albums, you know, you think, oh, Sergeant Pepper, you, you picture that album cover immediately. Right. Uh, not the case with these. Anyway, that's his style, so I'm not going to complain. Anyway, the thing about these works, Albany's Iberia, this is one of those works where there's one recording of these that's head and shoulders above every other one and probably will be forever. And that's the one made by Alicia de la Rocha in, uh, I guess, 1980 or the early 80s, um, 82 or something like that. Um, she captures, she's, she was a Spanish pianist and she captured the, uh, the Spanish feel of all of these works so perfectly that uh, I've just never heard anything um, even close. I mean, she, she seems to pull all the elements out. And uh, th these are highly virtuosic works. They, they require, like, strength and a lot of, uh, you know, kind of um, virtuosity. And yet you also, at, while you're doing all this, you have to um, weight your notes very carefully because there's a lot of counterpoint that kind of shouldn't really get in the way of the melody, but it's kind of making itself... Um, known it's it's not it's not just disappearing into the background so it's a really hard work to pull pull off and um the interesting thing about this recording is this is probably the best recording of these works i've heard besides the della rocha ones mm. she's still number one but gurner captures the whole spanish element of these beautifully and he makes them he, he's got a unique approach to them he's not really he, he who knows he may be playing against the della rocha um, interpretations, but uh, he doesn't sound like her. See, mm. he sounds really like he's got his own ideas about how these should go, uh, and uh, that really captured me. He's he's got the whole Spanish element, and he's kind of made them a little uh, new here. So let's talk about these. There are twelve tracks. They're all fairly long, or they come in at about anywhere between five and eleven mm. minutes, let's say. But they're pretty involved. There's a lot going on in each one of them. Yeah. And they're tiring to listen to for that reason, because <laughs> your ear is getting a real 
it's getting a workout in the sense that there's a lot of detail to listen to. Not in the fact that it's harsh or anything like that. It's actually really, all this music is really beautiful and entertaining. Evocative as well. Okay, in fact, the first work is called Evocacion. Let's see, Gurna starts this one slowly and meditatively, which is good. Um, it captures a romantic mood in tune with the work's idiom. There's a pretty decent shaping of the Spanish melodic material with its downward moving triplets. That, you know, that kind of Spanish element that you always hear that really defines the pieces. Spanish. And the clarity of Gurna's playing and the recording are both fantastic. This is a great recording, too. Mm-hmm. Clear, good, clear piano sound, capturing all the detail of Gurner's playing. Now, some of these, um, there are some, if you look at the score of this, there are like sections marked piani c c c c c like with five <laughs> Ps or five Fs for forti c c c c you know? And uh, he gets some really, Gurner is capable of just these very light sounds on the quieter parts, and he can really come crashing down on the fortes, and mm. I'll talk about that in a minute. He brings the bass melody out strongly at the two-minute mark. That's where the melody is. With the right-hand accompaniment very clearly played and heard, and so it's not really fading in the background, sort of like these sort of distant bells when he plays it. He really sees them as a little more important. The Spanish feel is there, uh, so he passes one of my tests for this work. It has to sound Spanish. I have a recording of this by uh, one of my favorite pianists, uh, Marc-Andre Amlan, and he doesn't really capture the the Spanish idiom uh-huh. very well. He's a great virtuoso, and really puts these scores across well. But I, I feel like he doesn't have the Spanish quality to his sound, mm. so I don't really listen to that one as often as I listen to the other one, like especially the De La Rocha one. It's not as outlined as it is on the De La Rocha recording, um, but nevertheless, this is well worth hearing. Gurner is going for something a bit different than De La Rocha's straight and definitive in my. in my mind, interpretation. He has a light, beautiful tone in the quieter parts. It's enchanting. I was really sort of moved by that, leaning forward in my chair to really catch it all. Really wonderful. I like um, the way he does the uh, endings on these pieces in this particular book. Um, He ends in the final two notes. They're kind of like, dun, dun. You know, it's just a dominant, (laughs) dominant tonic note. Incidentally, I should also mention there are twelve of these tracks, but they're written in four books. So there's three tra- there's three pieces per book. That's probably a good way to listen to these. Mm. The Spanish rhythms can really start sounding samey after a while. So I would break these up if I were listening to them. All right, track two is El Puerto. This is my favorite work in the entire set, and it comes right right near the beginning, which <laughs> makes me happy. <laughs> um, I love its liveliness and the evocation of bustle at a port. And the important question here is El Puerto de Santa Maria in Cadiz. And the rhythm is a zapateado. Gurner goes for something strong and manly in the left hand. You know, whereas mm. De La Roche is a little uh, more softer and kind of like, there's a little bit of, she's got a real magic to her phrasing. I don't know what it is. Um, we hear all the discords written into the score very clearly on this uh, performance. It's not He's not shy with those. Um, this has a bit of a dance quality to the melody. I was happy about that. Um, the harsh chords that follow are harsh indeed. They're rather papered over in De La Rocha's recording. <laughs> She's really after the Spanish feel of this. But I kind of liked hearing them here. Um, I've actually played through this movement on the piano, and I noticed those, I, those dissonances. I was like, wow, mm-hmm. I didn't really realize they were there. After the opening, Gurner gets a bit slower and softer, as though the music is communicating a daydream. 
He miraculously manages not to lose tension when he does this and gets back to the dancier rhythm for the repeat of the opening line. That's the key to uh, the set, too, is he, he'll sort of suddenly quieten and change like, um, you know, the rhythm will change a bit, but he's got this sense of the line of the entire piece, like it never slackens. And so you always feel like that sort of, the, you know, the tension of the entire work from beginning to end is really taut. That's a real secret that I'd like to know how that's done. (laughs) (laughs) But great pianists all do it. I generally like this piece to be livelier than Gurner plays it. He goes for something a little dreamier, but I liked what he did. Uh, It's a nice matter-of-fact closing notes at the end. I like his. I like those. Track three, El Corpus en Sevilla. This um, piece draws a sound picture of a religious procession in Seville. Big sound in the Fortissimi. Gurner really can make the piano ring out, sort of like he's like a Russian pianist, you know, <laughs> playing to the back of the hall. He's got a solid, strong, big-boned tone. The bells, or maybe they're flamenco guitars. I always hear them as bells because the piano. They, I think they might be flamenco guitars. They're supposed to be. At a minute and 23 seconds, that's in the upper part of the piano. Ring out strongly, as does the pedal point bass. Um, the piano tone is a bit hard in these fortissimi. This is, uh, they're not really pliant. That's probably due to the firmness of the attack. So that's part of uh, Gurner's sound. I prefer those really fortissimi to be a little more sort of pliant, a little warmer. But he's got like kind of like a hardness to his sound. That's part of his um, his sound palette, I guess. In the second minute, the realization of the harmonic changes pianissimo are all beautiful and sensitive warming the heart. The opening material returns just before the fourth minute. Gurner really isn't afraid to bring out dissonances or a gruff tone. Uh, triplets erupt in, erupt in the five minutes and 33 second section, and Gurner plays these again, loudly and firmly, making them register strongly. I'm amazed at the contrast Gurner is able to bring to different sections of this piece, now gruff and loud, now sensitive and tender, for example, at six minutes and 30 seconds. The architecture of the piece comes across strongly enough that all of these contrasts register as inevitable, so we're in good hands in this piece, and really for the rest of these works. Okay, we move on to book two. This is track four, Rondegna. The charming opening theme is beautifully rounded by Gurner, who takes a sudden forte for its repeat, and we hear the following material at 30 seconds at high volume and well-timed rhythm. The theme at a minute and 26 seconds comes across sunnily and joyfully. The piece then slows for a more meditative middle section at around three minutes and with quieter accompaniment registering beautifully. Gorgeous ending too with quiet notes followed by a burst of dancing rhythm leading to the final cadence. Very nice. One of the best performances on the album really. Rondania, track four. Track five, Almeria. I don't think there's an accent on that eye. I'm not sure. There's some tough sounding... uh, thirds in the thematic material here tough sounding to sounds meaning they sound tough to play i was never good at thirds <laughs> this is a quieter <laughs> piece and the longish one too at a minute nine minutes and 45 seconds the spanish character of the opening material is well brought out there are a few outbursts of fortissimi which quickly disappear into the quieter material of the opening arpeggios in the bass Introduce a new section at 3 minutes, gorgeous playing at 4 minutes and 51 seconds as chords high up in the piano's range sprinkle down on the mid-range suspended notes. Suspended meaning held, yeah, they're being held over. The material livens up at 5 minutes and 40 seconds to dispel the magic spell the previous section put on us, and we're back in the real world for a while. 
We get more enchantment at 7 minutes and 30 seconds, with a light Spanish-tinged melody playing high up in the piano's range over a vague rhythm underneath, consisting a lot of, uh, of a lot of held notes into so the rhythm becomes a bit hard to figure we don't really hear the accents gorgeous performance there's real magic in this particular piece i would urge you to sample this one too so tracks four and track five are the ones to sample i would say hmm. track six triana uh rhythm based opening with a bit of a dance quality Gurner rather plays down the cadential material at around a minute and 30 seconds which i remember della rocha accenting heavily and I like Della Roche's approach. Also, Stephen Huff played this piece on his uh, Stephen Huff's um, Spanish album, and he kind of tends to follow Della Roche's um, template. Uh, he plays this beautifully too, by the way. He he has two pieces from this um, set on that uh, on his uh, Stephen Huff has uh, two pieces from this set on his Spanish piano album. This one and the Invocacion that opens the work. Gurna has his own approach, though. In spite of the pedal blurring the bass notes, all the attack can be heard on this excellent recording, which picks up a lot of detail. Uh, but that, of course, is Gurner's playing, too. He gets a big treble splash out of the ending, and again, we get that loud, firm attack. Track 7, El Albaicin. This has a staccato. This is now book three of the four books. Um, staccato rhythmic ostinato opening to this. The thematic material builds gradually. I like the, that Gurner manages to separate the strands of thematic material both harmonically and melodically. By a minute and 20 seconds um, in track 7, we're already in a song-like rhapsodic section. Again, the Spanish elements of the phrase shapes are well articulated. Gurner draws out a lot of elements in the score that make it seem unfamiliar, though I've heard this piece many times. It's just interesting how easily he makes this seem fresh. Really gorgeous pianissimi as throughout the... Uh, interpretation on the song-like sections contrasts are all fully realized in this particular piece track eight el polo this is given a quiet meditative opening with light spanish melodic spicing lots of staccato are you is used to bring out the rhythm the main rhythm kicks in in the second minute it's full of slight pauses and gurna chisels this rhythm out with his strong clean tone and slight rubato at the beginning of the phrases by 3 minutes and 51 seconds, the piece has picked up a lot of momentum. It dissipates a bit as the piece gradually becomes quieter. There's a nice dancing approach to the ending chord. Track 9, Lava Pied. Some odd harmony in this lightly <laughs> dancing theme, which Gurner relishes. He's forte in the repeat, keeping the bass, anchoring the constantly moving right-hand figures. We get a new section at around a minute and 30 seconds with a heavily outlined rhythmic figure. First played in repeated notes. Gurner comes crashing down appealingly on accented beats, keeping a sense of the passionate rhythm as flurries of scalar figures pass in ghostly fashion in the background. Again, Gurner has a good sense of pulse and manages to keep the rhythm moving despite the sudden changes of pulse in the presence of broken up phrases. There's a dramatic approach to the end, complete with serious dissonances, made fully audible, which reduce to quiet wisps of dance-like melody, and two emphatic ending chords. All right, we get into book four, the last book, the last three pieces. First one is Malaga, track 10. If you listen to this um, album straight through, as I mentioned, the rhythms can be kind of samey. This one starts with the Spanish rhythm familiar from earlier parts of the suite. By two minutes and 30 seconds, we're hearing the circling rhythm powerfully gain momentum with its forte sound. 
He quietens in the third minute, and again we hear the melody played in the piano's mid-range in the left hand, while the right plays high, sometimes dissonant and accompaniment. And there's a big ending on this one. <laughs> and Gurner really makes it big, too. Track 11, Jerez. Contrast at last. This starts quietly and modestly. And I believe Gurner is playing this without using the una corda pedal to achieve the quiet effect. There's no real muted effect. He's just playing it this quietly. It's quite a technique. The volume builds in the third minute, after which we get a new theme softly stated in the third minute, beautifully realized with a sensitive sense of the Spanish elements of the melody, as has been the case for Gurner throughout. There are some really gorgeous chord changes in this work, especially in the fifth minute, which Gurner highlights with subtle changes of attack and slight pauses when they occur. Heavy accents in the seventh minute highlight the Spanish rhythm. The heavy loudness to delicate quiet that Gurner achieves in this and throughout the album, again, is notable for making this set so appealing. Uh, there's a tranquil approach to the atmospheric yet rhythmically chiseled ending. And the last track, Editania, track 12. Brief ending at 5 minutes and 22 seconds to book 4. Highly rhythmic and dance-like, gaining momentum and volume as it goes. As throughout, the Spanish flavor of the rhythm and melody are expertly brought out by Gurner. I also love how he does a small ralentando just before new sections start, before moving at full speed into the next section. Ralentando is like a slowing down. There's a fantastic buildup of momentum to the end of the piece and of the entire suite. Thoroughly satisfying, fantastic rhythmic momentum throughout. I really love this set of pieces, no matter who's playing it. The rhythms just make me happy immediately, and there's a lot of detail in this. This recording is one of the better ones I've heard. In fact, it's probably the best one besides Alicia De La Rocha's early 1980s recording. Gurner captures the Spanish flavor of the pieces and brings out all voices despite the virtuosity required. Form and rhythm are all beautifully realized. Absolutely hear the De La Rocha recording if you haven't heard it. This is a set to hear, though. And again, I'll also recommend uh, Stephen Huff's um, Spanish piano, uh, Stephen Huff's Spanish album, where he plays two of these, sort of in the spirit of De La Rocha. This is a little different than De La Rocha, though, so it's, uh, it's a good way to rediscover these pieces. And if you like them, and if you like Spanish rhythms, absolutely hear this. Yeah, it's unique pieces for sure. I mean, there's a content of the compositions. They're really like histrionic, going crazy. Sometimes they get dreamy. And they're always changing without any warning, uh, keeping you on your toes. But they're really fun to listen to. The performance is really fine. He brings out all the contrasts in the tempos and real attention to dynamics. Uh, all the subtle shades are there. And a great sounding recording, too. Uh, as you said, they can be a little bit too much of a, a good thing. So Because mm, it's, it's long. It'll take 80 minutes to get through the whole yeah. set. Yeah. Listen to one set, one book at a time. That's three. That's three. They yeah, usually three. do them in threes in those yeah. days. Yeah, so. And um, I broke it up over two days. And yeah. uh, But I really enjoyed it. Very exciting, passionate uh, compositions. Right. I think uh, the thing you said about the contrast, he really does a lot to bring that oh, out. Yeah. Whereas um, De La Rocha has more of a, she She kind of makes them a little more uniform sounding like, of right. a piece. So I think that's a feature of this um, mm. set. So if you want to hear something, a little different version of that, this would be a good recording to hear. Okay, and third in the classical music, uh, we have a bit of an adventure. <laughs> it's an album called Le Monde Selon Georges Antile. Um, the uh, artists are Patricia Kopachinskaya on violin and Yunas Ahonen on piano. 
This is on the Alpha label as well. All right, I wanted to say something. Patricia Kopachinskaya, I have loved this violin. She's Moldavian. Since I heard her play the Bartok Violin Concerto Number no. 2 and the Ligeti Violin Concerto, two works that I really love. They're really adventurous and exciting. And she gave these just magnetic performances of those two. She then released an album of uh, Prokofiev's Violin Concerto Number no. 2 and the Stravinsky Violin Concerto, and I was hooked and listening to everything she did. Now, when we started this podcast, right on episode two, we had um, we did one of her albums. She's she's a very adventurous uh, performer and uh, programmer as well. Um, the album we heard on episode two was called Plaisir Illuminé, and we didn't like it <laughs> because it was really weird. Yeah. Uh, we like well, I liked bits of it, but the entire program I was kind of was a little too much. Then we heard her do uh, Pierre Lunaire by um, Schoenberg, where she actually sang the uh, the solo part, and I thought that was a little histrionic too. We both did, and then we heard uh, her play uh, with Sol Gabetta on an album called Sol and Pat. And we rather liked that one, that and fun, noticed yeah. that it was adventurous as well. That had the Ravel uh, duo for violin and cello on it, which mm. I really love. So this came out. I can't, and I have to keep trying because I like her playing. This album is it's called "The World According to George Antile," and it tries to capture Antile's vision of the world through music. There's only one George Antile work on the album, and there's also a Beethoven piano sonata, <laughs> uh, not piano sonata, violin sonata too. It fills out the program with composers like Beethoven that Antile admired, and others, Morton Feldman and John Cage, who he knew and admired him. Um, so it's a picture of his world, really. The co- the album cover is kind of cute. It features a black and white photo of Ahonen and Kopachinskaya in a World War One era biplane, decked out in pilot goggles and headgear. Ahonen <laughs> is in the front seat, looking dashing, with Kopachinskaya behind, looking rather cute and diminutive in her leather helmet. <laughs> um, the the, the um, album cover catches the feel of Antile's peak period, which was the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties. Think the Great Gatsby, um, Prohibition, all of this. Now, Antile was in Paris during all this time, so he was um, drinking mightily, I'm sure. <laughs> the booklet notes for this album are very interesting. Uh, so if, if you get your hands on the CD, I absolutely advise you to uh, give them a read-through, as was Antile himself. Antile, by the way, was American, I should mention. In fact, all of the composers on this re- on this recording, except Beethoven, are mm. Americans. So it's really an American recording, even though the title is French. the The French title is indicating his time in Paris. I think he even studied with Nadia Boulanger. I'm not really sure about that. Let me give you a sample of the booklet here. Um, Antile advertised himself as a pianist futurist. The futurists praised they started in Italy, and they praised speed, youth, danger, violence, the industrial city. And the miracles of technology really sounds like rock and roll. <laughs> it inspired many innovations in the arts, as well as the living dangerously of Mussolini's fascism. <laughs> now, Antile uh-huh. himself was never a fascist, but his friend Ezra Pound was. I mean, as people probably know, Antile was never a fascist, but many Italian futurists and Ezra Pound too were. Antile did like the whole sped-up world that Futurist praised, and it shows in his machine-like aggressive music. Boy, if Antile were alive today, <laughs> he would be the only person on planet Earth that loves the world we live in now. Because <laughs> everything is like super fast now. 
Uh, he thought of a pianist's fingers as both his ammunition and his machine guns. Mm. <laughs> okay. I think you already know what you're in store for. Kind of. This is not going to be gentle ballads on this <laughs> album. All right. Antile's piano works often caused riots. So once in Budapest, he asked for the doors to be locked for the second half, which was the <laughs> half that he uh, was playing his music in. He then took out a loaded Chicago gangster-style 32 automatic Colt revolver from its silken holster under his left armpit and laid it on the piano. Respectful silence and attention were thus imposed. No riot at that concert. <laughs> this is even better. Even Alberto Narcisi in my novel, Extreme Music, doesn't get up to antics like this. I really should have read this first. Incidentally, I've mentioned on this podcast before that if you ever want to read an autobiography of a composer, the best one ever is by Hector Berlioz because he's just such a character. He's, he's really honest about himself, and he's also rather full of himself, <laughs> which is entertaining to read about if not yeah. to be around. <laughs> Antile, however, wrote the second most entertaining autobiography ever by a composer. His autobiography is called Bad Boy of Music. And it is highly recommended reading. Antile is a great writer, okay? And he, he writes well about himself. Musicologists often complain about this. There are factual errors in the book, but, you know, you can do your research if you want to find out what those are. Um, he was a compelling writer, though. All right, let's get to this program, which is, uh, it's not just an adventurous program, but as we'll see when we get to the Beethoven, they're adventurous performances as well. Mm. The first track, it's uh, very short, by Morton Feldman, American composer, called Peace for Violin and Piano, written in 1950. Now, Antile appreciated Feldman's work, and John Cage uh, introduced Feldman to Antile's music. This is a very brief work, just under two minutes long, and it plays on silence, as especially Morton Feldman's later music in the 80s. He did four-hour works that were just like gentle chords, you know, with loads of silence in between. This work is very spare, so so much that one notices each note and where it's placed in the temporal field. I kind of feel like when I hear this work, like you're looking at, say, a football field, and you're seeing, like, if you can imagine sound as objects, they're just placed in random places <laughs> you know, on the field. <laughs> That's what I wrote, random tones, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like Webern, really. Um, mm -hmm. This reminded me a bit of Webern, but Webern had the... Uh, the 12-tone system that he was using. All right, next we get up to Beethoven. Violin Sonata number seven, Opus 30 number two, written in 1802. Okay, so now let me just say right away, this is not an interpretation that you're going to want to just go to just to hear a violin sonata. This has been <laughs> interpreted to fit into this program, into uh, Antile's bad boy sort of uh, image, his self, uh, <laughs> self-defined bad boy image. Mm. Beethoven is on this album because he was Antile's lifelong hero. And I got to read this too. This is from, this is what you're missing by not reading Bad Boy of Music. In, in the book, Antile described the Beethoven Sonata, not this one, but a different one. It doesn't say which one, like this. He said, the first theme, a noble theme it is, as noble as a man's true love, the woman he marries. Now comes the second theme, in the dominant key. So this is going to be, in, you know, if you're in C major, this would be in G major, right? In the dominant, a brighter key. It is the mistress. Sounds like an Italian wrote this. <laughs> the mistress always comes a little while after the wife, and she is in a brighter key. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, though, for the mistress theme will be as dull as the wife's in the recapitulation in the same key. Isn't that like <laughs> life? 
And here's the development. Here is where the wife gets to know about the mistress and raises hell. Here they are together. Left hand is the wife. Right hand, the mistress. They call it counterpoint. I call it a cat fight. What a wonderful master Beethoven is. Those are George Antile's words. (laughs) I wish he was my music teacher. (laughs) I shall have to keep this in mind next time I listen to Beethoven sonatas. Okay. So... This first movement of the uh, Violin Sonata Number no. 7 is labeled Allegro con Brio. It's played rapidly, and Kopachinskaya's articulation of the opening melody is highly contrasted in volume, much more than you'd normally hear mm. in a more straightforward performance of this work. Um, with the first held note almost disappearing, and the fourth day sawed out of the instrument, it's kind of an ugly tone, and intentionally so. That's going to set the scene for the whole movement, and really the whole sonata. Uh, Kapachinskaya has always got a unique take, and here she's providing high contrast. It's interesting, but it's more for the program on this album, rather than interpretation of the sonata that you'd return to. So really, this should be heard, when you listen to this, you should hear it in the context of this particular album. The tempo is pretty fast, as I said. Kapachinskaya's phrasing is, um, let's say, inventive. This is a performance that makes you sit up and take notice, though, mostly because of the oddities of tone and phrasing that Kapuczynskaya conjures. Um, That's not to say it's bad. It's actually very compelling, but rather removed from traditional approaches, which is in keeping with Antile's whole vibe. I bet this would be interpreted differently by this ensemble if it were on an all-Beethoven album. I think the interpretation was made to suit the spirit of this particular album. It's playful and iconoclastic, Ahunen plays the piano part fairly straight, though. It's Kopachinskaya that's got all the oddities of tone Mm. and line. Although, Ahunen is playing very fast. Second movement, Adagio Cantabile. This starts out as a straight and really lovely reading of the movement, with Kopachinskaya delivering a gorgeous vibrato in her line. The piano is rather free with his phrasing, taking certain lines staccato. There are a few dynamic surprises from Kopachinskaya, but all in all, this is fairly straightforward, at least more so than the first movement. Kopachinskaya and Ahonen do manage to pull out some surprises in attack and contrast throughout the movement, though, making their attacks suddenly quick and sharp-edged, then soft and tentative. They make this movement a study in contrast. I liked Kopachinskaya's almost inaudible pizzicati just before the final cadence of the movement. Third movement, scherzo, allegro, and trio. This has an awkward rhythm that begins the movement with Ahonen leaning into its idiosyncrasies. Kopachinskaya ups the ante with off-kilter quick crescendos that make the violin lines sound neurotic. <laughs> this is quite a experience. The fourth movement, finale, allegro, very fast, fairly straightforward with some elements played more emphatically than usual, especially in the piano. There's some nice contrast in the lower theme at a minute and 45 seconds or so. Oh, sorry, the slower theme at a minute and 45 seconds or around that point. The movement comes across as manic with some breathers in the quieter sections. Kopachinskaya will manipulate her sound at times in ways that make the listener sit up. At four minutes and eight seconds, the piano adds a hesitancy to his chords. There are all kinds of subtle manipulations of tone and rhythm in the movement by the soloists. I'd urge you to hear this version of this uh, sonata, if only to understand that a piece need not sound like its standard versions do. <laughs> so I often get like people saying, well, if you hear, like, uh, say, for example, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, 
that's it. You've heard it. Like every different orchestra around the world is going to play it and it'll sound like that. Uh, but if you listen to a lot of recordings, you'll notice pretty quickly that's not the case. Uh, there are different tempos, different details that are brought out. You're, all, you're hearing all the same notes, but there's a lot of room for interpretation in a composed, written-down work. All right. John Cage is the uh, composer on track six, his Nocturne for Violin and Piano from 1947. Cage really liked Antile's work and introduced it to Morton Feldman. And uh, this work features a lot of piano arpeggios sustained by the sustain pedal, with the violin exploring some varieties of sound, like sul ponticello, or long, sustained, quiet high notes. It's a spacious work like the first Feldman we heard, but with more detail. Not terribly relaxing, but highly listenable. It's it's actually one of uh, the less unusual of Cage's pieces, because mm-hmm. he really got into some wild stuff. All right, finally, the man of the hour, George Antile. We hear his Sonata Number no. 1 for violin and piano from 1923. Think about that. Really appreciating this work is going to require us to kind of put our heads back into the 1920s because Antile is using a lot of mechanical rhythms in this, and they're really harsh, like <laughs> mechanical rhythms. Now, we live in this um, digital age now and uh, where things don't really sound like this anymore, so we're not going to respond to this the same way that audiences would have at that time by punching each other and throwing chairs. <laughs> what did it say earlier? If there was a, if there was a, um, if there was a piano, if there was a performance in France in the 1920s that didn't erupt into a riot, the performance was considered to not be successful. <laughs> you, had to, you had to bring your boxing gloves to those uh, theaters back then. Anyway, the outer movements of this work consist of percussive and repetitive machine music with allusions to Satie, earlier works by Antile, and Stravinsky. The piece was written for the violinist Olga Rudge, who was poet Ezra Pound's lifelong love. Antile and Rudge performed this and the second sonata, which is not on this album, uh, frequently and always to sold-out houses and with his, with <laughs> success to scandal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it says here, a concert did not cause a scandal in Paris at that time was considered a failure. Well... George Antile was one of the more successful composers <laughs> of the period, given that standard. This piece has a rustic kind of mechanical rhythm in the first movement, played at mid-tempo. At a minute and 30 seconds, the piano plays a manic repeating high note, while the violin plays a neurotic ostinato line. The mechanicalness remains and is very direct here. Uh, the piece keeps suddenly changing from one section to the next, and it's always chugging, but at different speeds. Uh, remember also, when you listen to this, we're in the cinema age, so cinema is a new thing, and this was a silent movie era, where sudden cuts were used, and that technique was applied to music in the early 20th century as well, instead of, say, modulating to another key like Beethoven would have done, mm. and everybody else in the Romantic era. Now we're just kind of, it's like a splice in a film, we're just moving into a new key with no warning, um, and this was acceptable to audiences because of cinema. There's a lot of maniacal repetition throughout the work. A lot of it can be thought of as repetitive factory machinery sounds. It's adventurous sonically, but enjoyable for those with a sense of humor. After the seventh minute, it sounds like a machinery we've been listening to is breaking down as the rhythm lurches forward, while Kopachinskaya throws her tone along with it as though she's being buffeted by the twists and turns of a roller coaster. 
it's a clever interpretation. So she's adding that to this, and I really liked it. It was clever. It ends suddenly and rather unexpectedly with an odd upward violin note. Movement 2, which is uh, labeled simply Movement 2. And they're all labeled like that. Movement 2, Movement 3, Movement 4. Um, this is one of the more... The two inner movements are more tranquil, and uh, they contain Arabic elements, and in Antile's words, all the strangeness of Africa. Now, Africa was sort of... Uh, and still a fairly unknown place at this time. Only uh, traders used to go there. And uh, since the world was sort of starting to open up a bit, uh, just African goods were starting to come into Europe, and I guess it uh, really intrigued people. Anyway, contrast with the first movement, Kapachinskaya's line and her delivery of it is eerie. The piano chimes a bell-like rhythm while we hear Kapachinskaya play exaggerated portamentos in her melody that give the music a sour past its sell-by date quality. She continues this throughout as the piano keeps up its bell-like chord quality. Movement three, track nine. Uh, the piano plays granitic chords while the violin plays long sustained notes that swoop from note to note. It's sort of an, I guess you could call that a portamento type of effect. It's very slow. The piano chords suddenly amplify at about a minute and 20 seconds, and the violin comes in for some loud playing. Uh, piano chords become a bit more Debussyan at uh, 2 minutes and 20 seconds, as the violin continuously hits a note by tapping her bow repeatedly on the string. Uh, the theme at 3 minutes starts slowly and gradually speeds up, with the piano playing lovely crystalline chords in its higher ends while the violin plays a circling ostinato theme. The movement ends with one more tapped note on the violin. It's kind of an interesting sound. We hear it a lot in orchestral music, but not so much in chamber music. And then movement four, back to a quick machine rhythm. Here the piano is playing a repeated chord, and this really moves. The violin pretty much plays the same repeated chord. The movement features shifting and sometimes abruptly changing mechanical patterns. The piano's line is pretty intricate, with interweaving mechanical rhythm themes like interlocking gears. It's a pretty harsh-sounding movement, but I have to say, I really liked it. It was really unusual and has an iconoclastic quality to it. I especially found Kapachinskaya's odd swooping sound at the beginning of the fifth minute over the piano's harsh, <laughs> dissonant chord to be especially amusing and even funny. It's like a malfunctioning machine. I'm sure it drove audiences crazy in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> in a nerve-wracking way. Um, so you're really not one to listen to before breakfast but uh, <laughs> or, or after work. But uh, maybe in a day, when you have a day off, you know. Anyway, track 11, we get one more work. Morton Feldman, Extensions 1 for Violin and Piano from 1951. Um, Feldman's works were always about space, and they became more and more about space as he got older. Here we get a respite from the aggression of the antile, and something resembling sounds placed in a time field, like a like a football field with time objects on it. This piece is longer at 7 minutes and 31 seconds than the opener, and it's also a bit busier. It has a lot of um, sort of atonal chords in it, and proceeds um, along something that's recognizably a rhythm, so each beat seems to get a chord. Sounds are random, as are levels of attack, and it simply ends unexpectedly when there are no more notes left to play. It's not a relaxing piece by any means, but it is relatively quiet. Okay, so um, if you're a Beethoven fan, this um, 
particular album is not for purists. <laughs> you got to be a bit of a an adventurer for this album. I liked it, though. And what I liked about it is that the program and performances are all of a piece. It's almost as though the uh, Antile... The Antile piece is the jumping off point for the interpretations of everything else we hear. And they'd all sound kind of odd if they were not heard in the context of the entire program. This is an extreme example of what a good program is supposed to do, compel you musically. Uh, the Antile Sonata is a work that simply isn't heard often enough. It's very enjoyable. Again, you have to kind of put your head into the machine age to really appreciate what it's doing. Uh, we generally don't hear industrial noise like this anymore. <laughs> And it's also rather comically clever in parts. The theme of this album is iconoclasm, and it really puts that across. We can all use a bit of iconoclasm from time to time, so I'm going to say give this a listen and get a sense of the past being destroyed in a way that makes the present seem full of possibility. That's what I think <laughs> that these iconoclasts were after. I think that would be Antile's wish. Well, certainly an interesting collection. Like we always say, if you're going to keep recording these um, Beethoven Mozart works, you may as well have a new take on it. Uh, so this is certainly uh, interesting. Despite the non-traditional performance, I was admiring the tight musicianship and, uh, mm. you know, the excellence of their performance, especially with the faster parts. The passage is faster than usual, taking some chances. Um, the performance impressed me. Uh, the Feldman pieces uh, don't really do too much for me. Uh, I did like the Cage uh, Nocturne. It's a really sparse and mysterious sort yeah. of uh, atmosphere that it creates. The yeah, Amtil, um, <laughs> that's kind of a, it's really hard to, I guess the machine like is what, uh, the way you describe it is maybe the closest thing. I wrote like about the fourth movement that is it, it sounds as if he's writing for a percussion ensemble sometimes you know yeah um, the piano as a percussion um, instrument yeah yeah it he really hammers home the ideas though so sometimes i feel like they go on a bit long All with right. the repetitions of of the ideas but i imagine that you know in a live performance they would really you know get the emotions rising but i think he was also he wasn't really going for composition as much to really hammering this into the listeners heads so they go crazy sort of it could <laughs> be sort of yeah. erupt yeah you know it, it it does have that kind of percussive quality to it so it's a yeah. it's a unique use of the violin uh sound and technique too is it not really anything else i can say sounded like uh uh this piece yeah, and then, like you say, that it does have an overall theme according mm. to his world, so the other pieces are adapted uh, to that in a kind of Feldman sandwich <laughs> there, too. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how a lot of people will feel about this Beethoven. It's a, it's a uh, classical take, adventure. If you like yeah. your music loud and if you like punk rock, you might want to hear this. Certainly, if you're, <laughs> you know, image of classical music is stuffy and uh, Beethoven yeah. is always the same, this will destroy those uh, preconceptions so take a listen it's I an think, adventurous I think program. that's what I'm going to do I'm going to just pull this one out when someone says that the next time someone says that to me oh how could you listen to classical music it's so stuffy and I'm like oh okay yeah MTL. <laughs> listen to this <laughs> that's my go-to <laughs> this will be my new go-to for that yeah <laughs> what's the other one oh classical music I love it it's so relaxing that's the other one I get a lot you know, oh yeah oh, a lot okay a lot of let's relax then, to this so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, that seems to be her uh, strategy with these uh, kind of adventurous programs. Yeah, but we've heard so you know, far. especially this one, though. But she's mm. you know, what she does want. She's not the kind of violinist or the musician or 
programmer of concerts to um you know just sort of make you relax really she wants really mm. wants you to to be listening and she's good at drawing your attention too i think yeah uh, and this is the first time i've heard ahonan on the piano and i really liked him too they're a good yeah. uh, duo here i'm pretty sure it's the first time i've heard him I mean, he might be on one of the earlier ones but i'm not sure <laughs> on to jazz and in a jazz category, we're going to go all Latin this week. All right. But I've just got so many Latin music recordings that come out from spring to summertime uh, in all instruments. I could just keep doing It's going to be hard to stay away from them, actually. I, I just played my last Latin card with uh, Albanese, but uh, okay. <laughs> well, let's do, I'll do what I can. I'll stuff them into other categories. I could get some uh, Italian stuff in there. <laughs> I've got a lot of Italian things still. Yeah, anyway, as you would expect, uh, the focus is going to be on rhythm. Uh, yep. with all this Latin music and some interesting choices here. Let's start out with Brazilian drummer Mario Gaiotto. Mm. And uh, someone new to me, but I was impressed when I heard this. And it's uh, his own self-release, Cosmopolista. Mm. This came out on August 7th. Gaiotto was a founding member of the group Mandu Sarara, a quintet of jazz and Brazilian instrumental music. Recorded two albums with them. He was also a sideman for Antonio Nobrega, a respected artist in Brazilian music. And then he went on to study composition uh, with uh, a professor, Claudio Leal Ferreira, uh, who is uh, considered to be one of the best teachers of harmony and arrangement in Brazil. And so on this album, we have him as also the composer of all the tunes. So we got a, a drummer-composer, which is always interesting to hear a drummer's uh, take on original compositions. And so here is his debut album as a leader, and we've got a jazz trio. And the concept is to make a portrait of Sao Paulo, one of the world's biggest cities. Uh, so the title combines cosmopolitan and paulista, the people from the state of Sao Paulo. Uh, and he wants to encapsulate uh, the concept of migration and immigration uh, with the different mm. groups of people, multiculturalism of the city. Uh, so he said, uh, that's why in my songs there are Brazilians, but also Jews, Arabs, Turks, Japanese, Armenians, Moroccans, Europeans, Americans, all living together in peace and without borders. And so he's going to have a lot of different ethnic elements that will come through the tunes, but the focus will be on these uh, tight rhythms and his uh, excellent drum technique. Uh, so we've got Vajato on drums and the composer of all the pieces, Daniel Greju on piano and Cidio Vieira on bass. And uh, he mentions a few things, but especially that uh, he was happy to have uh, Greju as a pianist who could sort of make his concepts happen in this group. And uh, I, I think that's uh, uh, something interesting that uh, follows through as you listen to the way the piano locks in and has a unique rhythmic uh, concept on these tunes. So let's go through them. We're going to start with Going to Maghreb, which... This is the North West African country, as a, countries as a region. Uh, it begins with a deep woody bass intro from Vieira. Uh, drums and piano join in, locking in with the bass on a straight six-beat figure. Uh, it switches up to a swinging four or eight-beat, depending how you feel it, with the piano melody strain. But then it goes back to this straight figure 
and uh, some more intricate rhythms as it moves along through the melody section. Agreju comes up first for a solo that's rhythmic, percussive, sometimes a little bluesy. Gaiato keeps kind of an eight-beat feel underneath with all kinds of tasty drumming ideas. Vieira is next for a bass solo. Now he comes out pulsing with rhythmic force and keeps it very intense. After a round of the melody strain, uh, piano and bass bring it down with some synchronized chord backing for a drum solo from Gaiato. He mixes up the beats, working around the kit and surprising with the timing of his hits that come uh, through the solo. Uh, they go around the original head again and you realize just how tight things are with this trio. Really, really interlocking rhythms. Track two. Tempora de Mashishi. And so the Mashishi is kind of like a, a Brazilian tango that originated in uh, Rio de Janeiro in the late 19th century at about the same time as tango was developing in Argentina and Uruguay. Uh, it's an intervallic piano intro line that starts things off here. It gets joined by bass and drums in a cross rhythmic line. Things lock in tightly and Greju works a percussive and ornamented funky melody line around the groove. After a minute, it changes up to a light and floating tango-like piano melody section uh, at the same tempo, which Gaiato paints only light cymbal fills behind. And he adds snare to push it along with uh, Vieira's bass keeping the pulse underneath. He returns to the original driving section for a time around as a transition into a piano solo from Greju. He has free-flowing lines, runs, mixed with rhythmic figures that lock in precisely again with Gaiato's grooves. Next, there's a stop time section with bass and piano leaving space for Gaiato to do some more soloing, impressing with rapid tom work here. And then bass and left-hand piano lead it back into the main melody section with a line that has a cute little skip in the beat uh, compared to before. Track three is Jerusalem. This is an intense intro with the piano centering around a B note, giving a modal feel. Gaiato is keeping an intense groove. It feels like it's in 11-8. Wow. And uh, the minor modal melody comes along in the piano. Listen to the tight locking in of the piano and bass here. Uh, Vieira gets an intense bass solo over tight and light drum backing and some chord hits from Greju, uh, who then returns with some variations on the melody theme into a solo that really impresses with rhythmic dexterity and rapid figures. It works into a section with static piano notes and a descending bass pattern for Gaio to, to solo over ranging all over the drum kit. It really sounds like he's got more than two arms <laughs> on this part. Uh, they go through the modal theme once more to finish it out. Track four, Uro Preto. A very complex ostinato bass line from Vieira starts this one out. The piano left hand joins with the bass, while the right hand chord figures punctuate over Gaiato's fills. It sounds like it's alternating between eight, eight and nine, eight, kind of uh, hmm. meters. Um, there's a pretty piano melody and a rhythmic right hand figures and bass working around it with intricate drumming from Gaiato. Greju opens it up for a nice solo with great rhythmic and ringing tones over Vieira. It seems to stay in a more steady eight beat here. Uh, next there's a repeating chord vamp section leaving space for Gaiato to do some drum work under. Toms and rim hits fly from all angles. Uh, they take it through the melody again, and a fresh-sounding rhythmic ending strain. Track 5, 70 times 7. 
It's a super tight 8-beat groove on this one with a locked-in bass and piano, left-hand syncopated line for an intro. The piano melody is, inf is infectious and slinks against the groove like a snake. It has cool modulation from D minor to F minor along the way. Vieira gets a bass solo. It's full of rhythm and feeling with a great full and intense tone. And Greju follows with the solo again, mixing blazing runs with super tight rhythmic ideas. An ostinato bass and left hand piano line with melody or with piano chords makes a backdrop for another exposition of complex drum soloing from Gaiato before they go around the slinking theme again, ending with a rising surprise in the piano. Track six is Tambu e Viola. It's a hypnotic nine beat rhythmic piano riff that repeats over cymbals with bass and left hand hits at unexpected spots. It builds into a forceful piano line that ends in a hold and resumes with a new happy solo piano rubato melody. Uh, it gets more motion with a new groove and super tight drumming from Gaiato. Greger then works some rhythmic figures into a solo that really flies and floats over the busy groove. It gets quieter for a solo from Vieira with soft piano chords and cymbals under his pulsing lines. And next, piano and bass trade-off sections with drum soloing before working back into the melody, with Gaeta working up a storm underneath. Grager takes it up higher and more delicate for it to unwind peacefully. Track 7 is called Raining. It's a slow, plodding waltz, ostinato bass, and piano line to begin. Uh, Greju adds rhythmic figures of piano notes and chords above while Gaiato dances lightly on the cymbals. It alternates with and without the higher piano figures. Eventually, drums and bass uh, drop out for a bit before rejoining for a bass solo over the piano, which keeps the ostinato idea going but higher up. Gaiato keeps it clicky under Vero's bass melodies, working in more snare work to bring it up with more piano figures to transition into a solo from Greju that's flowing and ringing. Vieira has a steady plod going underneath and he continues it as the piano solo transitions to simpler figures from earlier and it continues with some syncopated variation and a final syncopated end phrase. Track 8, Enquanto Voce Dormia, While You Were Sleeping. It's a rhythmic bass line opening. It sounds like it should go under a melody and it soon does under the cheerful tune played by Greju on piano. There's some syncopated mix-ups along the way here, keeping the rhythm interesting, and Gaeta accents them. Uh, there's some cool unison bass and left-hand piano answering lines to the melody too. And the middle has a solo piano section where Greju runs both lines uh, by himself. Uh, this is a short piece, only three and a half minutes or so, so they wrap it up with the melody again quickly. It's light and a lot of fun. Nine, a nice title, Armenian Jazzy Metal. It's hmm. uh, so a mixed meter, beginning with a unison descending modal piano and bass line. It moves into a heavy and menacing section built around a low D on the piano with little syncopated diversions that return to the pitch. Then there's a lifting piano solo section that contrasts with some different harmonic ideas. It returns to the heavy section, adds the piano idea on top, uh, next, an excited and rhythmic piano part is added for a bit before Greju gets to run off on a solo that explores some interesting harmonic ideas with runs before becoming more rhythmic. So different groove and more piano figures transform the heavy idea into some backing figures of bass and piano 
for soloing by Gaiato. And finally, there's another rhythmic piano section into an outro of the modal bass and piano theme from the beginning. And the final track, Merakapiba. Hmm. It's a rhythmic piano melody line. It starts it out with heavy stop time hits of drums and bass. It repeats, and Gaiato adds snare and then more drum figures to fuel it. Greju gets melodic variations going, some chiming chords before he gets to a solo. Gaiato has a chugging groove going on underneath with tight snare work. Uh, Vieira takes a bass solo next with tight rhythmic lines. It goes through stop time hits of piano and drums. A slower chiming piano section over cymbals changes the feel completely before it's off on a new infectious groove of bass and drums with the fun high register melody figures from Greju, and they have some exciting rhythmic play with it to the end. So it's an exciting recording, uh, focusing on Latin rhythms, of course, tricky meters, really intricate drum work. There's a variety of melodic and modal ideas mixed in the tunes, uh, reflecting the ethnic influences. The interplay is incredibly tight. Your ear is constantly drawn to Gaiato's interesting drum work throughout, but Greju impresses with his own sense of rhythm and exciting solos. Uh, Vieira's bass sound is strong and deep, uh, sometimes keeping the pulse and other times syncing up with piano or drums seamlessly. His solos have a lot of drive in the bass too. So if you like Brazilian rhythms, if you love this album, and must listen for all drummers. Uh, this guy can really do some different meters and subdivisions and keeping things super tight. Yeah, I want to say first of all about this album, it's really well produced. I liked the way it sounded. Um, there's production on it, but not so much that it doesn't sound like a live performance in a room. This this is an example of uh, like a kind of production on a jazz album that I like. Mm. I think this is good. Uh, the drums have several mics on them, and they blur the boundary between the way jazz and rock drums are mic'd. You can kind of hear each each right. drum kind of like in its own it has its own sound. It appealed to me. I like the drums' presence on this recording, and I like the whole album. All of the tracks begins really interesting the way they'll build. They'll start with a short ostinato pattern. So again, this kind of reminds you of rock and roll. You'll have some like repeating pattern and then like the uh, theme will come in and then the solos will start from that. The whole album felt good to me. Uh, I especially liked, um, let's see, track uh, seven, Raining, which I thought was, um, yeah, the, the patterns that were just sort of overlaid right. in that track were really interesting. And there was kind of this sense of like, just this sprinkling rain to it that I thought was really inventive. I liked that mm. a lot. And also track eight in Quanto Voce Dormia was really pretty, very yes, pretty. sunny and a great contrast to the previous track, Raining too. Yeah. So those were the two standout tracks for me. Yeah, at least the ones that I just kind of really caught my ear. I like the way the Estenado pattern is built into something bigger from small things. Great things are made. I'd love to have this on a CD, but couldn't find one. Please release one. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. write to him and see what uh, the yeah. plans are here. This just came I, I, out. I'd, I'd buy this one, I think. Yeah, <laughs> if, if it was on a CD. Anyway, yeah, great drumming. All right, further on the Latin train, we're going to get to Mr. Brian Lynch and Spheres of Influence with his yeah. new recording, Songbook Volume Two, "Dance the Way You," that's the letter you want to. And yeah, this is on Prince used to write it. <laughs> yeah, Holistic Music Works came out August 12th. Now, uh, Brian Lynch has got quite a resume in the world of jazz. He was a member of the Horace Silver Quintet back in the early 80s, 
also the uh, Toshiko Akiyoshi Jazz Orchestra in the 80s as well. And then he was also working at the same time with Latin uh, music and salsa band leader uh, Angel Canales, 82 to 83, and the great Hector Laveau, 83 to 87. So he has a really big uh, Latin background. Also, Eddie Palmieri in 1987. Wow. And in 1988, uh, he joined what would, I guess, become the final sort of version of Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. And then after that, he uh, joined up with Phil Woods in 1992, kind of taking over Tom Harrell's chair uh, with that group. And Tom Harrell played with them from 83 to 89. And uh, he also did some work with uh, Benny Golson. And among his many other independent uh, works as a leader, he's got a lot of uh, Latin releases in uh, recent years that we've been uh, fond of. Uh, the fabulous uh, uh, Modera Latino Latin yeah, Jazz Interpretation that on the music of Woody Shaw. I think that's a double right. album, isn't it? Yes, uh, it is. Yeah, it's a great one. Yeah. If you love Woody Shaw's music and then just add all these Latin rhythms to everything and monster players, that's great. That was 2016. And right. 2019, the Omni American Book Club, Brian Lynch Big Band, uh, this got the uh, Grammy Award for Best Large Jazz Ensemble. Yeah. And then last year, we covered on episode 36 of the podcast, 2021's Songbook Volume 1, Bus Stop Serenade. Mm -hmm. And we enjoyed that a lot. And so here's the yep. follow-up. Dance the Way You Want To, this is in Lynch's words, continues my songbook project of reclaiming my original compositions recorded on various labels for my own Holistic Music Works imprint. After the success of Volume 1, Bus Stop Serenade, named on the top 40 albums of 2021 by Jazz Times Magazine, uh, Dance the Way You Want To, continues the journey through my past catalog by exploring the Latin jazz side of my work in fresh versions of material written over more than three decades. Uh, in addition, two new compositions make their debut on this album, EP's Plan B for Eddie Palmieri and The Disco Godfather. Uh, so this is for <laughs> pioneering black comedian filmmaker Rudy Ray Moore. And so... Here we've got, of course, Brian Lynch on trumpet, Tom Kelly on alto sax on some tracks, Aldo Savant on tenor sax, Chris Thompson Taylor also on tenor sax on some tracks. I'll point those out as we go along. Two pianists, Kemuel Roig and also Alex Brown. Then we've got uh, Rodner Padilla on electric bass, Hilario Bell on drums, and Murphy Allcamp on percussion. So we start this recording out with EP's Plan B, as we just learned it's for Eddie Palmieri. This one starts with a deep and funky electric bass line and some mm -hmm. woodblock, I think, in there. Conga beats bring in piano and drums on a Latin vamp. Then Lynch and Solvent enter with a unison horn line that snakes around miter modal ideas with precision. Uh, gets more uplifting and Latin sounding towards the end with some cowbell added below it. Uh, there's a break and then back to the bass intro into a trumpet solo from Lynch, who somehow manages to keep a really relaxed feel while making it really rhythmic with syncopated interval ideas and a laser-like tone when he gets up into the higher register. A Salvin follows on a tenor solo, spacing out his phrases to get started. His phrasing's smooth and his sound is restrained even when he's playing faster and forcefully. Uh, next, it's time for some deep and funky bass in a solo from Padilla. 
Alex Brown follows on a piano solo. He has some engaging harmonic ideas, gets percussive with some chiming Latin lines and crashing chords. Uh, the horns come back with a melody line to transition into a Latin breakdown with nice piano from Brown and the percussion getting to have some fun. Uh, the horns come back with another tight line on top for a bit and a final build up to the last blast. And it's a high energy tune to get things started on this recording. Track two is Change of Plan, and this is a change of pace compared to the first tune with a medium-slow Latin groove here. Camille Roig plays a pretty piano intro over light drumming and congas. A little bass and left-hand piano line lead into Lynch taking the melody on trumpet. Sexes come in on backing lines and then join in to harmonize with him. It's a slow groove, but with an accented push in the horn lines and bass. After a little interlude, Padilla gets a, another fleet-fingered and smooth bass solo. Tom Kelly's next with an uplifting alto solo with some double time lines. And then Lynch follows. Uh, his solo gains more excitement as he goes on with smooth, fast lines, nice articulated phrases. Chris Thompson Taylor follows on tenor sax, digging low with some phrases, keeping the intensity going. And Roig on piano is next. A lot of high energy lines in a short solo and Lynch brings back the melody for another round and the saxes join in backing, Roig adding some cool punctuated piano accents between phrases. Track three is Across the Bridge. Uh, a drum hit and a cool syncopated bass and left hand piano get it going. Kelly joins in the line on alto. Lynch adds another line on top of that which counters until the sax and trumpet join and the bass goes its own way. There's a lot of syncopated fun going on here. The horns stay together for another section. The bass line transitions into a solo from Lynch. He starts out with some rhythmically spaced out phrases and moves into more connected ideas that keep pushing upward. The percussion and piano kick it up underneath, pushing him along as well. And Padilla is doing great bass work underneath everything too. Kelly's necked on alto, getting intense with some high register notes and rhythmic accents. Brown follows up with a piano solo before it's back to the bass and left-hand line, repeating for some extended percussion jamming until Lynch and Kelly return with the melody line. Then we've got the title track, number four, Dance the Way You Want To. Roy gives an eight-bar piano intro over the straight clicky drum beat and bass. It's nice and bluesy and sets the feel for Lynch and Taylor to come in with the bluesy unison horn line that splits into harmony. A little cowbell underneath sounds good as well. Seems to be an AABA form. The B section contrasts nicely in the horn lines and chords and the groove changes up too. I like the anticipation in this B section with the early phrase. It starts on the fourth beat of the uh, fourth measure rather than on the fifth or on the fifth measure. So it sort of pulls you in early. Taylor gets a tenor solo first here. He plays sassy lines leaving good space in between as well. Lynch has a longer solo here, and it's really impressive how he works this complex ideas perfectly through the chord changes with agility. I mean, he he did write these tunes, but his sort of precision of uh, hitting all the harmonies with these agile phrases really impressed me. Uh, there's a few bluesy phrases in his solo too, but he adds in what sounds to me like a Woody Shaw-inspired interval phrase uh, that you don't hear too often in other players. I mean, Woody Shaw had a really unique concept using intervals like fourths and things. Uh, it's a great solo. Roig has a piano solo next, having fun with some repeated notes and surprising hits of momentary dissonance and a kind of Chucho Valdez-like 
exploding mm. line. Uh, next, the horns trade off solo phrases with the percussion before another run through the melody with a couple repeats of the last phrase. Lynch going up high on the fast one so that he can take a final fall uh, on the ending. Then we get that disco godfather for track five. Lynch and Solvent on tenor started out with independent robotic sounding interlocking rhythmic horn lines. The rhythm section enters with the bass adding more complexity to the rhythm. It seems, I don't know, what, maybe 9-4 <laughs> time signature. Really hard to count it out. It's complex and fun horn arrangement. The horn's trading off solo lines and spots as they go around. There's a contrasting calmer and lyrical section with the horns together on phrasing, and it feels like it goes back into 4-4 four, four, or some kind of 8-bar phrasing. Uh, it gets more intense again with a driving rhythm underneath. Lynch solos first over the complex groove that changes up feel as he goes along. Then Solvent is next, navigating the tricky rhythmic hurdles with smooth phrases. Alex Brown follows on piano, where the drums and bass lighten up for the start of his solo, and he weaves smooth lines. Percussion and bass groove on a bit, and Brown adds some intense rhythmic piano lines on top. The horns return and take it through the challenging tune again. Uh, try to wrap your head around all the rhythms and meters <laughs> in this tune. It's uh, really complex, but a lot of fun. Track six, Tom Harrell. That's hey, the name of the tune. An ode to him. Yeah. yeah. So very cool electric bass ostinato pattern starts this one out with percussion and the piano doubles with left hand and added chords. Uh, as the rest of the rhythm section joins in. Lynch and Taylor come in on the melody horn lines, evoking some Tom Harrell-esque melody figures. Uh, it's a fun arrangement in 32-bar form. The last section has a more pronounced Latin feel to it. Uh, they go around everything twice. It gets a little lighter for a piano solo by Roig next, impressing with fleet fingers on runs and chiming rhythmic notes. Lynch is next on an enthusiastic solo with a few nods to Tom Harrell in his licks. Taylor follows on tenor with smooth blazing lines and rhythmic figures in his solo. The percussion gets some jamming fun next over that groovy bass ostinato and Roig adds chiming piano on top. The horns add another new line to build it up back into a final run through the melody, after which Lynch and Taylor trade off solo lines and then join on some riffs over piano and a final lick from Lynch to end it. By the way, uh, Tom Harrell himself, who's a great composer and we heard just a a couple weeks ago. He's done a lot of compositions with Latin rhythms, uh, but check out his 1998 recording of The Art of Rhythm. It's a full exposition on all different Latin rhythms with really lovely instrumentation too. Track seven, Silent Conversation. It's a gentler tune with lilting horn lines. Lynch starts and gets answers from Kelly on alto sax. It seems to be in a 9-8 meter Kelly weaves around Lynch as the melody floats easily, and Kelly also solos first, sounding smooth and free over the unhurried groove. Lynch is lyrical as well, but has some fun with the rhythms in his phrasing. Roig has a gentle piano solo, showing off his touch with high register ideas to end. The horns return with a new line that builds up the intensity again into some interesting rhythmic phrases of anticipation into the melody line and a smooth ending. Track 8, Que Seria La Vida. A gentle ballad with a delicate piano intro from Roig. Lynch takes the melody, showing his clear tone and phrasing, adding vibrato in 
just the right few spots. The melody builds up to a lovely high tone for a climax before settling down. Then Lynch continues on directly into an improvised solo. He keeps it gentle, impressing with the rhythms in his phrasing and note choices. He ends with the phrase that Roig emulates to start his piano solo. He's more animated in his style, but keeps it graceful with smooth runs and lightly chiming notes. Lynch returns working into the lifting section of the melody. He gets a solo cadenza, tracing the harmonies, adding an unexpected high exclamation, and making a final soft but firm ending phrase. Uh, very nice, gentle tune. Track nine, Awe Shocks. <laughs> a complex weaving bass and left-hand piano line get this one going with syncopated piano chord and drum hits. The horns lay a complex line on top of that, and the rhythms are popping uh, from all corners of this song. Uh, there's a contrasting, more flowing horn line section, and then the bass locks into the horn phrase at the end for a cool effect. The original bass line goes around into a bass solo from Padilla. He's funky and fluid with a great rounded attack on the notes. Brown follows with the piano solo, full of inventive rhythmic ideas. Taylor is next on tenor sax, and boy, he always sounds smooth, but he has fast phrases that really lock into the rhythms. Kelly solos on alto next, also with intensity, and then Lynch wraps up the solos with an exciting one, uh, pushing to the end with rhythmic phrases into the upper register. Uh, Brown vamps out with the bass for the percussion to beat out some tight and heavy soloing till the horns burst back in with the melody and a line that keeps building tension to the last note. In track 10, we get uh, alternate take of Tom Harrell. Uh, as far as the arrangement, it's the same, same tempo and feel, uh, what you do get is different solos, uh, particularly Lynch has some cool lines with different building interval ideas here. And then I noticed that the piano is also quite different over the percussion jam section. He doesn't get up into that high chiming as much, uh, which was cool in the earlier take. So it's worth checking out uh, for the differences. So as with volume one, uh, Lynch gives us another great collection of his original tunes. Uh, there's it's like an hour and 20 minutes. It's a long recording. Uh, mm -hmm. They're en engaging Latin rhythms throughout. Uh, the horn lines keep you amazed with the creative directions and rhythms that they take you through. The solos are inspired all around. Lynch sounds powerful, confident on trumpet, great tone, uh, really skillful solos. Uh, a must listen for all trumpet and Latin jazz fans. Yeah, and uh, I should have chimed in around track nine. All Shocks was my... Uh was the standout track for me. Oh. <laughs> um, it had some really genuinely exciting moments in it, um, especially towards the end of that track. Um, the whole album had exciting mm. moments, but uh, track nine towards the end, Aw Shocks, it had some great stuff. It really picked up my energy. <laughs> it's good. Like, I've heard quite a bit of Brian Lynch over the last few years and really like his really bright sound. And yeah. most of this record sounded like a fun party to be at, like a fun jazz party. The solo track sounded like the party's aftermath. <laughs> anyway, it was it was a good time. I really enjoyed this album a lot. It was yeah, you know, really uplifting. I get well, not uplifting in a spiritual way, but uplifting in a energy way. Let's say. Yeah, I'm amazed at the you know the horn lines, the the melody lines that he writes. They're really complex and they go on and on. You're not going to hear the same thing over and over, you know, in his uh, compositions that really intricate and all the th the lines and sections build on each other become really exciting. And mm -hmm. uh, with these Latin grooves, it's really a lot of fun to listen to. 
All right, and wrapping up the Latin selections for this evening, we've got one that just came out on Friday. Yeah, we got to hear this one before its release date, didn't we? We did, and that's uh, yeah. thanks to Anne Braithwaite. Thanks for getting us a copy of this to uh, start listening to early. That helped out a lot. And we're talking yeah, about uh, Miguel Zenon's new Musica de las Américas. Yeah, who I should mention, we're both uh, fans of. I've, I'd, yeah. th this is another artist that I'd really listen to anything that he records. I have quite a few of his albums. Yeah, this is on his label, Miguel Music. Yeah. And, well... Uh, he's Zinon, if you don't know, from San Juan, Puerto Rico, originally uh, made his way to the States and uh, onto Berkeley College of Music and graduated from there in 1996 and also attended Manhattan School of Music, uh, continuous studies, and he got a uh, master's degree in performance 2001 before settling in New York City. He's worked with a lot of artists uh, in New York, Charlie Hayden, Fred Hirsch, Kenny Werner, David Sanchez, Daniela Perez, uh, the list goes on and on. And uh, he's made quite a name for himself. He's worked with Brian Lynch, too, as well, I believe, Joey Calderazzo. But he's won a, n a number of critic polls in jazz and other publications for top artist and top alto sax player and nine-time Grammy nominee, six-time for Latin Grammy nominee. So I, I hope he gets the Grammy all the... You know, our estimation of uh, who wins the Grammys is not, uh, yeah, <laughs> not aligning we, with. Uh, we, although I don't know, does, did he win one recently? No, no, I don't think he's so. always not. He's one of these artists like that's always nominated but doesn't yeah. seem to win. Yeah. It's a real shame. Yeah, they some some artists have a lock on it or something. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Miguel, we hope you do win one. Yeah, because <laughs> you deserve it. But uh, we will think any less of. Uh, uh, well, let's see who else is up yeah. there, though. It might be. Yeah. You know, it depends. I don't yeah. Know. But yeah, we generally like this artist a lot. Yeah. The uh, story here is um, the we got the album notes and we got the press release, so lots of extra information that I'll weave into here. So uh, he writes: the music is inspired by the history of the American continent, not only before European colonization, but also by what's happened since. Cause and effect. Uh, Zinon's explanation. And uh, music grew out of his passion for the history of the American continent and the resulting album pays tribute to its diverse cultures while also challenging modern assumptions about who and what America is. Hmm. Interesting concept to start out. So we've got the Miguel Zinon Quartet as the bass here and also all compositions by Zinon himself. Uh, so Zinon on alto saxophone who We've heard quite a few times on the podcast, uh, episode 10 with Charlie Sepulveda, uh, this is Latin jazz, episode 34 with the sort of um, pandemic online big band, Chad Lefkowitz Browns and the global big band Open World. And we also heard him on uh, episode 39, Josean Jacobo's uh, Herencia Criola album. Uh, so we've heard his sax quite a few times. We've got Luis Perdomo, on piano, who we heard in episode 27 last year, Pete Rodriguez Obstacles recording, and we just heard him in episode 73 on Tom Harrell's Oak Tree, and he mm. impressed us there too. Yes, so, he's always impressive. Yeah, we hear some really good <laughs> piano on this recording. And let's see, we've got Hans Glauschnick, maybe just say it all together, Glauschnick on bass, mm. and Henry Cole on drums. Also, we've got some other uh, guest features. Uh, we've got Los Planeros de la Cresta, 
which uh, consists of Emil Martinez, Edwin Weshin Avies, Joshua Ocasio, Joseph Ocasio, and I don't know how to say this name, Heluis Ocasio, Panderos, which is like a tambourine-like instrument, uh, percussion and vocals on uh, Navegando. One tune here that's a, I guess they're a plena group, a Puerto Rican street music that's kind of uh, somewhat similar to like Trinidadian Calypso and using these uh, handheld drums. Uh, we also got uh, Paoli Mejias on uh, percussion on Montun, Opresión y Revolución. Uh, Victor Emanuele on Barrio de Bomba. It's kind of a traditional Puerto Rican drum on uh, Bambula tune. And Daniel Diaz uh, Congas on Antillano. This was recorded in March of last year. And so let's get into it. We've got a little bit of um, information for each tune before we start. So the first one, Tainos y Caribes. So the notes say, uh, referring to the two major societies who inhabited the Caribbean prior to European colonization, and who are the subject of this opening tune, they were the two predominant societies, but were very different. The Tainos were a more passive agricultural society, while the Caribes were warriors who lived for conquest. This is Zenon's explanation. And so he captures the clashing of the societies in the interlocking rhythms of the piece. So it starts out with a tense rhythmic piano opening by Perdomo. Bass creeps in underneath with a dash of percussion before Zenon comes in on the equally frantic melody. Uh, the tension builds over the A section, but things lift up with the changing harmonies of the B section. Tight drumming and percussion underneath, and listen to the battling of the rhythm in the bass and piano under Zenon's racing lines. Uh, Perdomo is up first for a piano solo that features fleet-flowing lines with little hesitations to add extra tension. There's some nice interval play and cascading rhythmic figures towards the end of the solo. Zenon returns for a fast unison melody line with Perdomo over the tense bass and drum pulses below. And then piano and sax split off into independent lines, transitioning into Zenon's solo. He's fluid and intense, working into some higher register lines and tricky fingering, but he keeps the melody feel moving throughout to a shrieking climax and an easier dropping final phrase. Drums take over for a bit, until Glauschnick gets a one-note bass pulse going. Perdomo adds some cross-rhythmic chords on top. Zenon joins Perdomo in the line, and it builds in intensity to a break. Then Zenon starts another topsy-turvy melody line over Perdomo's chords, but Perdomo joins in unison for the final sprint to the end. All right, we're off to an intense start yeah. on this recording. Track two, Navegando, Las Estrellas Nos Guían. So the stars guide us, I guess, like mm -hmm. navigator. So this is kind of a tribute to the seafaring culture that existed across the region. Zenon's quote, one thing that blew my mind was how they could travel the sea at long distances just using canoes while being guided by the stars. That opens conversations about what's archaic versus what's advanced in terms of scientific achievement between the new world and old world. Yeah, that's something that blows me away, yeah. too. Like, I remember reading that Hawaii was settled by uh, people from around Indonesia, around that part of the world, and they just yeah. went in these kind of big canoes, and they found Hawaii just Imagine by guiding that. themselves just by the stars. It was really unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the album notes say, this composition translates elements from various constellations along the Milky Way and also features the Los Planeros de la Cresta, 
the planar group here. And so it's kind of an interesting collection of different sounds. It starts with some sparse long piano chords with a slight syncopation to hint at the rhythm to come. The percussion comes in faintly as Perdomo adds some right hand figures above the chords. Bass joins in working together on some of the piano right-hand figures. More percussion adds some suspense to bring in Zenon on the smooth melody line. The percussion continues on into a little break for a bass and left-hand piano line to bring in Zenon on another line with another break. Uh, the melody is easy, but the charm is in how Zenon locks in the rhythmic variations with the percussion as it moves along. He connects to a solo, keeping mostly melodic rhythmic phrases, a few bluesy hints, and then ripping into some double-time lines with a gentler ending. Perdomo solos next, uh, rhythmic but flowing too, and then Zenon returns with more smooth melody to a break with a bass and left-hand piano line that leads to a showcase section for the Los Pleneros de la Cresta to add vocals and more percussion. Uh, Zenon joins in behind the vocalization for a bit, uh, then Perdomo brings back the chords from the intro, Zenon joining in with the right hand figures until just the chords finish it. So it has a nice arc to the composition, lots of things adding in, especially the enjoyable uh, addition of this planar group. Track 3, Oppression et Revolution. Oppression and Revolution. So this is, according to the notes, evokes the tension and release of revolutions on the American continent, notably the Haitian Revolution, among others, featuring the percussion of Paoli Mejias matched with the percussive piano work of Perdomo. The piece also reflects the influence of Haitian voodoo music. Hmm. Zenon and Perdomo started out Saxon piano working phrases against another piano phrase, Drums kick in, bass joins in a low piano line to a crashing hit. Zenon blows a melody line over hectic rhythms below. And next, alternating rhythmic piano dissonances continue over angry sounding syncopated bass and percussion working below. This must be the creating the sense of, of oppression. Zenon returns with a unison line with the piano over very busy rhythmic work underneath. A piano chord punctuated percussion interlude leads to Zenon returning for a solo over the busy bass, piano, and percussion rhythms below. The tension and moods change up as he blows on over the dangerous groove. Zenon mixes up his rhythms and phrasing, but still keeps it smooth and connected, culminating in some shrieks and locked-in figures with the percussion. It lightens up for Perdomo to start a solo over some low, throbbing bass from Glowishnik. The drums keep it light, but intense with more percussion from Mejias as Perdomo builds intensity with repeated rhythmic phrases and percussive chords. Zenon returns for a line, and then there's a hypnotic ostinato bass and piano low line for some drum and percussion jamming with tight conga rhythms. Zenon returns with some final melodic lines that are more uplifting, different in character, so perhaps that's signaling that the revolution has overcome the oppression. Track four, Imperios. And so Imperios, uh, it says Zenon composed it with the various indigenous empires of America in mind, including the Incas, Mayans, and Aztecs. Uh, they were some of the most advanced societies at the time, at their time. As a matter of fact, 
they were in some ways more advanced than what was happening in Europe in terms of contemporary mathematics and astronomy, society, and politics, says Zidon. There was something there already that was really advanced, and it makes me think about what could have been, what would have come out of that. The melody derives from Zenon's transcription of music from a ceremony of Aztec descendants, which is the counterpart to the rhythmic structure of the song. Sets up a big expectation, what are you going to hear? Yeah. But it's actually quite uh, gentle in character at the start here. So Zenon starts out the solo, on the relaxed rather, opening that works intervals that return to a concert G sound. Uh, Perdomo joins in with piano chords and then Cole adds a slow but emphatic drum beat. The bass adds an intervallic line at the end of Zenon's phrase for an interlude until Zenon returns with a new gentle melody line. Things get more rhythmic with syncopated bass and piano figures under Zenon's still smooth phrasing. It eases up for a section before a cool bass and piano line undulates underneath. Cole kicks up the beat into a groove with more motion uh, for Zenon to solo over in more animated fashion. And the bass has cool pulses driving it underneath. Uh, Zenon gets speedier lines, but varies his articulation and rhythmic ideas creatively. He works some tense but controlled upper register ideas. Perdomo follows with a piano solo of flowing lines, rhythmic play with staccato intervals. Zenon comes back with a melody line, and the underlying rhythms get busy for a bit, but pull back to only piano and bass uh, walking in step before Cole joins in again to help them mix it up with rapid syncopated figures, pushing to the end where Zenon and Perdomo join in on a frantic unison line to end it. Uh, I like how this song builds from simple elements and all the rhythmic changes that happen along the way. Track five is Venus Abiertas. Zenon's compositions on this whole album, Musica de las Americas, reflect the dynamism and complexity of America's indigenous cultures, their encounters with European colonists, and the resulting historical implication. Uh, Zenon immersed himself in these topics during the pandemic, reading classics like Eduardo Galeano's Venus Abiertas de Americas, America Latina, Open Veins of Latin America, Five Centuries of the Pillage of a Continent. Uh, which details Western exploitation of South America's resources, and another book, Andy Robinson's Gold, Oil, and Avocados, A Recent History of Latin America in 16 Commodities from 2020. It's a modern version showing things haven't changed for the better. <laughs> so that's <laughs> like rather a weighty uh, works that became the inspiration for this tune. Well, this one fades in, unusually, with short ringing piano phrases and drum toms, bass joins in as Perdomo improvises in short phrases and Cole works the toms and light cymbals. Zenon joins in on a melody line that Perdomo is also in sync with. There's a piano interlude with some ominous low notes and dissonant chords. On Zenon's next line, a sneaking low bass and piano line wanders menacingly underneath until a smoother section emerges for Zenon to work to the end of the melody. The bass and drums turn busy uh, for Zenon to start a solo. Uh, they're throbbing underneath him. Zenon is flying free above, tracing out harmonic ideas with intermittent chord support from Perdomo. Uh, he keeps the intensity building into disconnected phrases and then faster rhythmic ideas, repeated notes, some high register torture with ominous bass and piano below. Uh, those rhythmic pulses continue 
with Zanon reviving from his strangulation to join in softly on top while Perdomo crashes chords with cymbal hits. Uh, the pulses alone are left to end the tune. Uh, it's another intense one that has lots of transformations. Track six, Bambula. Uh, this one features the percussion of Victor Emanuele. And the Bambula is a dance uh, that was brought over by African slaves to the Americas, developing first in Haiti. Uh, over time, Bambula became the rhythm commonly referred to as habanera, uh, which is found in much of Latin American music today. The 3-3-2 rhythm is found in Bomba from Puerto Rico and Francesa from Cuba. Zenon says it's a thread from New Orleans to Brazil to Central America back to Africa across all these eras from the past to contemporary pop. For me, I wanted it to feel like you're out at the dance, but at the same time hearing this more modern harmony and melody. Emanuele on Baril de Bamba gets it started with a half minute or so of solo. The drums join in to kickstart a bass and piano line. Zenon and Perdomo add a higher cross rhythm melody line on top. Uh, impressive coordination by Perdomo to do these two lines at once. Mm. Uh, they're, they're really rhythmically in different worlds. After some more of the bass line, they add the top line again, and then the groove slows up to a more flowing and swelling transition section with longer notes from Zinom. It gets busy again with more rhythmic lines and percussion underneath. The bass line transitions to a long section of solo exchanges from Zinon and Perdomo. Uh, the tight and intricate percussion rhythms really make their phrasing lock in, and they sound inspired with exciting phrases. Uh, Zinon keeps blowing to wrap up the exchanges with a concluding low line as the rhythmic rhythm comes to a halt. Uh, he restarts with a slow, tender line, and Perdomo adds gentle chords. Another short pause and things get busy again, back to the tempo and groove, uh, with Cole and Emanuele working it under Zenon's lines that build to repeating phrases and that he takes up an octave to an expected big finish, but then he surprises by bringing it down low and quieter for a final softer uh, solo sax ending. Track 7, America el Continente. Zenon returns to a major theme throughout the album, the conception of America not as a country, that is only referring to the modern United States, but as a continent. Uh, so America el Continente makes that point clear while reminding listeners of the political implications of the United States assuming ownership of the term America with its subtle erasure of the remaining Western Hemisphere. Okay, so the tune uh, starts out with Perdomo uh, solo. It's got kind of uh, chained legato rising notes of lines of six notes, settling the rhythmic six-beat feel. Uh, bass and light cymbals join in. Zenon comes in, synced with Perdomo's right hand on a melody of spaced-out pairs of notes uh, that work to a section of longer phrases that Perdomo dances around. The bass adds to the movement, and there's a lot going on at once with the various lines. It comes to a big pause that Perdomo builds more rising lines out of for a bass solo. Uh, it's a gentle setting with just sparse cymbals. The bass is melodic and longing with clear attack on taut lines into the upper register. The rhythm gets a skip in it, and Perdomo and um, bass build it over the drums with some fast syncopated hits into a new section for Zanon to solo over. He really bubbles in his sounds over the groove uh, with light drumming below. Cole mixing things up here 
and there, but keeping it driving along. Uh, Zanon continues into a new unison melody line with Perdomo up high on the keys. Piano, bass, and drums crash to an ominous pause. Then Zanon lifts it gracefully out of Perdomo's rising figures. It gets agitated again with the bass and piano left hand, but chills over the rising piano figures for a gentle ending with a short return of the two-note melody figures from Zanon. Pretty trickles up high by Perdomo. Then we're going to uh, finish it up here with Antillano, named for the residents of the Antilles. It showcases what Zanon is best known for, bringing together past and present in a forward-thinking, musically satisfying way, uh, ending the album on an optimistic note. The piece emulates aspects of contemporary dance music while serving as a feature for Daniel Diaz on Congas. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of fun because the, the uh, light-hearted nature of it kind of disguises some complex stuff going on. So a conga and drum uh, start to the tune, bringing an infectious happy piano rhythmic part from Perdomo. Uh, Zenon joins in on top with a happy line. Uh, if you try counting it, the meter changes are going to surprise and maybe frustrate you. Uh, there's also a lot of unexpected modulations <laughs> along the way as the tune goes along. But you'll get used to what's going on because it's a lot of fun. Uh, they go on around with some breaks for Zanon and percussion to poke out from and some syncopated rhythm skips in the piano and bass. Uh, Zanon solos on and on smoothly over the top with speedy and happy melodic lines, mixing choppy phrases to the rhythm uh, with more legato ideas and getting exuberant in the high register uh, with some interesting harmonic departures as well. Uh, he continues on to a new melody section. Cole gets some time to have fun drumming under cycling chords on piano and bass. Then Zanon returns for a line with Perdomo that changes up into a busier rhythmic section for Diaz to work the conga. Uh, they return to the melody and a couple of fun false endings and then bring back the more settled original groove to a rather unresolved ending surprisingly but it's all in good fun and that wraps it up uh, so it's an exciting recording celebrating the history of the americas hmm. both ethnic political but of course musical uh, particularly the many rhythmic influences and varieties of rhythms that developed uh, in the americas the songs transform and take you on little journeys with unexpected diversions zanon's playing is almost always intense but he has a smoothness to his sound, uh, even at his busiest moments. Perdomo impresses here with his hands handling multiple rhythmic ideas at once and creative solos. And Gloshnik on bass and Cole make a tight rhythm machine. And the percussion guests uh, on the various tracks all add to the excitement and assortment of rhythmic feels and grooves on the journey. Exciting concept album uh, with lots of uh, interesting tunes. Yeah, when Zenon takes on like a sort of project like this, I'm always amazed because he he's he's got a lot of depth in his understanding of the different rhythms and musical styles of the Americans in general, and not just the United States, like the almost the entirety of the Caribbean and the yeah. Central and South America as well. As he just can incorporate so many different elements into his music, it makes for really interesting listening. Um, so this album to me was it was intriguing all the way through all the, the different rhythms and the you know the time signatures and the sounds and um, excellent soloing some really surprising moments. Zenon you know he's a he's um, a high speed soloist with a lot of content in his playing and for me he reminds me of Rudresh Mahantapa who he recently interviewed but the content that they have in their playing is very different whereas you know Zenon's has the elements from 
the Americas and all these different things. Whereas Mahantapa has the, you know, the jazz past and um, his Carnatic influence and it all just kind of gets in there. And yeah, it's, solos like this are just amazing to me. Like the, the depth that they can put in. Anyway, I've actually got this one on order on CD and I will be listening to it again. It was really intriguing. Yeah. There's a lot to uh, pick apart. And I was listening to it, uh, since we got the early release, you know, sort of casually, just soaking it up. But then when I sat down to uh, write my notes, I realized, well, I could use uh, even more time to uh, keep listening yeah. to sort of figure out everything. Yeah, it's only going to take on. a long time to absorb the elements that are happening on this album. Yeah, really uh, inspired playing, and uh, yeah, great piano work by Perdomo again. We get to hear him, uh, you know, in, within a few weeks on two uh, really excellent recordings. So I, I feel like, uh, you know, he's going to go on to do more and more big things too. Well, there you go. An exciting list of Latin jazz to uh, keep your late summer with high energy. Yeah. And, uh, there's a lot of really good Latin jazz um, out now. So I'll try to get some more releases snuck into different categories. I think next week we're going to do a piano. Is that right? Yeah, we're on piano next week. Not okay. piano solo in classical, but we'll just have the piano on all three recordings. In general. There will be a solo one in there too. All right. I've got a lot to pick from, so I'll try to mix it up, uh, yeah. get some variety. I'm mixing it up a bit too. Yeah. There you go. Just get back to the keyboard. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got a guitar episode uh, coming up. We haven't done that in a while, so uh, within a few weeks we'll get that in too. Yeah. There's a new Shanchibe, electric guitar. I'm really oh, kind of keen to That's going to be interesting, yeah. That just came out. Um, yeah, I haven't heard it yet, but uh, mm. we'll be talking about that on that episode. And I got some chamber music coming too, so when are you ready for that? Maybe in between. It depends, yeah. really. But next week is piano. You just mentioned uh, Rudresh Mahantapa, who yeah. uh, if you haven't heard it yet, Definitely go back and uh, check out our interview with him last week. He's just finishing up his run at uh, Smoke Jazz Club. Uh, I think that's it. Tonight, Tonight's the Tonight last will night. be the last night. That's right. Well, by the time this is up, it'll be over. Yeah, it'll be or almost the same yeah. time that he'd be playing yeah. there. Uh, so, and yeah. you can, by the way, you can uh, see those uh, performances. I think it's fifteen U.S. dollars. Uh, uh -huh. You can uh, pay to watch them online, and uh, I think you get a day or something uh, within the time of the performance to view it online. So if you can't make yeah, it to they, New York, And they may be wearing their superhero costumes. Yeah, I don't... We we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. But uh, yeah, that's worth the price of admission just to see those capes. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> the music, from what he's posted on Facebook, it looks like uh, they're having a really good time there. So uh, you can they're, still They're not check wearing that superhero out. costumes on the post, I, huh? I, I, not in the posts, no. Yeah, okay. So, Maybe in the last night they'll do it. <laughs> anyway, be sure to check out that interview if you haven't. It was a really good conversation. Yeah. And uh, come back again for next week, episode 79, for some piano music. Uh, as always, we'll have some uh, exciting things. And the playlist will be uh, put up tomorrow after this episode. So you can uh, check out the music uh, one week ahead of time if you want to, uh, only on Deezer, a preferred streaming platform. And we'll post some uh, other things on the Facebook during the week. If you want to check us out there, look at our page. Maybe get some interaction with uh, some of the people on this week's program. And uh, the summer's coming to a close, uh, Mike, but we've still got lots of good music to push in through the fall. So no, we'll go all the way to we'll go all the way to winter. And uh, yeah, I you yeah. know I have a feeling. Remember we we thought the Charles Lloyd trio was coming out, 
Yeah, and, it was supposed um, to come out on uh, Friday, the yeah, 26th. You know, I have a feeling... They pushed what, it back. I know why yeah. it didn't. That was a why? huge release day. I think there were like 30 other kind of big releases that came out oh. on that day. And I think that's kind of it because there has not really been anything in the last couple of days. I think that's like the end of summer kind yeah. of push. And so they probably wanted to uh, make it come out and stand out on its own more. Not that Charles Lloyd wouldn't already, but... You know, right. I think there's a teaser track up there, but I want to wait to hear the whole thing. So, <laughs> and there are two. Yeah, there are two. It's a, a trio of trios. And uh, actually, if you bought the uh, CD box set, which I did not do, um, you have all three albums already. You oh, bought you, them, you can like, get them already. already. Oh, okay. Well, they're all sold out now. Those boxes because uh, they were okay. all signed, right. and they sold them as three. Of them. But now the rest of us, uh, me and you too, have to wait for the other uh, two to be wait. released individually um so tricky, september 23rd tricky. is going to be the oceans one and then the uh sacred thread i think it's called is the last one it's yeah. november 18th now because that got pushed back as well oh so, well we'll just have to yeah, wait gotta wait gotta keep listening to yeah, chapel yeah. and that's a good one yeah it's a good know? one it's, a, it's got bill for sale on it yeah all right lots to look forward to thanks as always to fast signs of staten island for our glowing logo and uh, thanks for all you listeners who stuck with us through here. Check us out on Facebook. You want to write to us, Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Be happy to hear from you. And until next week, episode 79, keep listening. And we'll see you again for some piano next week. Mm-hmm.